0: dozen podcasts
1: okay um Hmm. i'm not mad about it at all but i am trying to remember what he said rob banks i remember the tone rob banks sure oh i mean i think that's i'm gonna be i told you i had to be honest with you i i demanded radical honesty i don't think we're gonna redo it no we're not but uh, i don't think that's you know i don't think that's the best but then again (laughs) It's not like a movie about scintillating dialogue, so I understand. Do you want to hear some alts?
0: Sure. We're not retaking it. I'm just letting you see what could have been. Okay, but that is canon. What I just did is canon, and these are just (laughs) some alternate drafts. The podcast just makes everything worse. Now, accurate.
1: Money. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Right. And accurate. Right. This is
0: the thing. Almost every one of these quotes, I'm just going to be replacing the word money with
1: podcast. Yeah, that's about it. I'm looking at the quotes and... I
0: thought it was from God. Who else would have that kind of podcast? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't track.
1: No. I thought it was from podcast. Who else would have that kind of money? That's kind of funny. It's like a joke about the podcast industry.
0: Well, sure. I thought it was from Spotify. Who else would have that kind of money? You'd have to like... <laughs> that's what you'd have to do. What, what was the other one here? Uh, I need a we. I don't know how you how you change I need a we. I would argue that's the best line in the movie.
1: Yeah. Um. You did fine. The tagline is, can anyone be truly good? That was the tagline of this movie.
0: Well, but there's another tagline to this movie, and it's a tagline that our guest ripped into aggressively, and we will talk about this in a second. The other tagline on this poster, David, of course, is a new film from the imagination of Danny Boyle. Right. Okay.
1: And and what's 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 the beef with that apart from well, what's the beef with that?
0: I don't want to speak for you, Adam. I don't know how you feel about this today, but your defense, your your argument at the time was why is Danny Boyle presenting himself as if he's Tim Burton?
2: <laughs> well, that in retrospect or having rewatched the film, that feels appropriate, doesn't it? I think so.
1: I think so too. Yeah.
2: Because Tim Burton is all over this film yeah it feels very much among other types of films and filmmakers that he's throwing into this mix it definitely feels a lot like edward scissorhands but without any real commentary or satiric bite which is fine and i'm sure we'll get into that more but yeah burton's all over this film so i understand why they were trying to sell it that way
0: the, the irony is, if Tim Burton made this movie tomorrow, we would all be doing cartwheels. We would be so fucking ecstatic if this was the filmmaker he had become.
1: If Tim Burton made this movie tomorrow, it would be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. That's how excited people would just be. It might win. It might win. I mean, people might be like, "Why'd you set it in the British? The Britain left the EU. Like, you know, there there might be some right. notes now if you made this odd alternate past." <laughs> yeah (laughs) right but uh but i think yes yes if a filmmaker who was sort of like a burton-esque like oh god he lost his touch with humanity made this there would be a lot of excitement yes
0: right and i think when people are depressed about who tim burton has become it's because they hoped he would be able to evolve into something like i i don't know if not like this something else Here's a crazy stat I didn't realize, because, you know, this is this period we've talked about a lot where Danny Boyle's like trying on a bunch of different genres. This is his real experimentation period, trying to see what sort of how we can use genre as a delivery system for different ideas. Uh, This is not only his only children's film. This is his only movie that is not rated R.
1: Yes. Is that surprising, really? He doesn't have a PG-13. Uh, He does not. I think the only... But here's the thing. What could that possibly... Yesterday, I guess. Slumdog. Slum, Slumdog. But Slumdog has lots of violence in it. Like, it's... That's uh, yeah, it's... Wait, is yesterday PG-13? kind PG- of a gangster 13, movie. Is this yesterday stat I may saw pre-yesterday? Yeah. yeah, this stat must be Priya Because there's no way yesterday was rated R, right? Yesterday is rated PG-13. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, okay, y- okay, so y- he finally... should have been again. rated
1: X. But yeah, yesterday should have been rated.
2: <laughs> I'd like to see that one.
1: <laughs> Wear a hazmat suit. <laughs> yes, radioactive. This, this thing's a this thing's a bomb.
0: It's radioactive. <laughs> Listen, uh, this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce. Baby, this is a mini series. As you may have picked up on about the films of Danny Boyle, we're calling it Trainspodcasting. Today we are talking about Millions. Millions! His 2004, 2005, depending on which country you were in, it was released in different years, Children's Fable. Uh,
1: yes. Yes, it is. But it's also like a, you know, sort of quasi-remake of Shallow Grave with kids. That's, yeah. that's also what it yes, is. Yes, it is. Kids yeah. and Saints. He loves his b- big bag of money. He loves a bag of money. It's very Hitchcockian of him. He just, you know, what, what's going to get plot moving? Scary
2: guys who show up Yeah. after the bag of money is dropped. Train spotting's got the
0: whole last act about like the sort of sports bag, the gym bag full of money. He loves that. Sure does. It's just a plunk, dropping a big old stack of bills.
1: So millions is a PG, huh, in, in yeah. America. It's a 12 in England, which I think is appropriate, because this movie is, is you know, it's a, little, it's a little frightening. It's a little uh, intense. I think if I was like six or seven, I would have been a little spooked by this movie. Yeah.
0: No, he gives it some, some, some genuine menace. Now, our, our guest today, returning to the show, second appearance, first time solo, co-host of the Film Spotting podcast which was previously the Cinecast when it launched in 2005. David, sometimes people will say, you guys are lucky you got in on podcasting early.
1: When we started our show 10 years later. Yeah. A full decade later. You launched when, like, listening to a podcast was that you had to listen to it on your iPod. That's right. Exclusively. It was purely
0: a podcast. Which
1: I did, yeah.
2: And... You weren't even able to go to iTunes yet. They hadn't launched podcasting. You had to go to these different podcasting websites to download shows and then sync them up with your iPad, your iPod. Wow, right. you
0: had
3: to plug in an RSS. Yeah,
0: right. Oh my god. And, and you had to make sure you were downloading episodes specifically onto the pod before you left your home.
1: That's right. Yeah. No. Right. You had to do your morning download. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. And as it turned out we, in fact, launched around the same time this movie came out because episode two. Episode two. Yeah, the second episode, the second movie we ever discussed on the show was Millions. Of what was the Cinecast.
0: Yes, now film spotting. Adam Kempinar returning to the show. Uh, So, Adam, I listened to episode two, which I had never heard before. I think I started listening to the show around 2010 or 2011. Uh, And recently, you guys just offered up your entire archive for the first Mm -hmm. time. Uh, You have uh, a supporting cast membership with them that is very much worth your money if you're a film spotting fan, because it's uh, 15 years worth of episodes. But I had not listened to episode two before, which runs a brisk 29 minutes in total. That's right. Which back
2: then, that people were like,
0: ugh, these episodes are so bloated. The most self-indulgent.
2: Yeah, that was kind of part <laughs> of it. On episode one, we talked about Be Cool. Yes. And Sam, my co-host, now producer of Film Spotting, we said at the time, the show is only going to be 20 or 25 minutes. And that's what it's going to be every week. 20 mm-hmm. or 25 minutes. In and out, people mm-hmm. are just going to get their movie talk fix or whatever. And that first episode ended up being like 45 minutes somehow. And we were actually apologetic about it, which is ironic here talking with you gentlemen as well, right? Looking back on that. And so I think we deliberately tried to pick up the pace a little bit with episode two. And so under 30 minutes, we we got Sam's story about meeting Alan Ball and lying to him. Uh We reviewed millions and we did the top five movies we're most embarrassed to admit we've never seen. Any one of those things now would take at least 30 to 60 minutes on our show. I can't believe it. In and of itself. No, you
0: were done with your millions review before the 10-minute mark of the episode. That's right. And then you start your top five with nine minutes left. And that includes having (laughs) to do, like, theme song, intro, outro Mm -hmm. on either side of those things. The first time I met you, Adam, because you and and Josh, whenever you're uh, traveling— We'll sometimes do film spotting meetups to, to, you know, pick a bar and try to uh, create a centralized place for listeners to hang out. And uh, J.D. Amato, friend of the podcast, uh, constant guest, uh, was the one who turned me on to film spotting because he's a, a Chicago guy. I think he first listened to it on the radio. I think so, yeah. And so we went to the meetup. I mean, this was, uh, this was right when we had started our show. So this was seven.
2: 16 or 17, early.
0: Yeah, seven years ago. And uh, you were were telling JD and I that internally you guys had been debating whether to split the weekly movie review and the theme top five list into two separate shows Mm -hmm. because you were worried that the show was getting too long per episode. And in fact, maybe one episode could not sustain both segments.
2: And it used to all happen in 29 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. And actually talking to you and – then, starting to listen to your show, even though we don't go as long as you usually, it made me realize that yeah, don't rub it in no, it's a good thing if If your audience likes what you're doing and you're giving them, I hate to say it decent content, then they they're not going to they're not going to start getting bored. They're not going to tune out just because all of a sudden they've hit a certain mark. if If they like the show, if they like the hosts, they'll listen. At least that's what seems to be happening.
0: sure, but they're also disgusting pigs. Uh... <laughs>
2: Yeah, they're revolting, revolting creatures.
1: Yeah, they should all shut up. And this episode's going to be twenty five minutes long, and that's that's the pattern going forward. We'll do commentaries, Griff, on Patreon. Yeah, but we'll just we'll just hit uh, stop at twenty five minutes. We'll be like, all right, that's all you get. You know, whatever. You're not even saying four x speed.
0: You're saying just you only get the first thirty minutes of a movie.
1: It would be funny if we watched movies deaf. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and tried to talk that fast. We would hit like the 15-minute
2: mark. If you listen to some of those early episodes, we would get about 15 minutes into a review, and I would say something like, well, we've got more to say, but we should probably cut it off here. It was almost as if I had this internal clock saying, well, no one's going to listen to this for more than 15 minutes, so you got to just shut up and move on, and, well, we've we've all changed with the times.
0: Adam, Ben just started salivating at the the (laughs) notion (laughs) of one of us saying that.
3: Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, truly. That would be a blessing. Can I ask a question about the uh, coming up with the name? Because you were at a time where you probably could have picked the movie podcast, like as your name. <laughs> I mean, like, as far as real estate goes, you had your you had sure. your picking. You had your pick.
2: You yes. could have maybe even been the podcast. You could have just called <laughs> the <yourself>. podcast. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, I don't remember where Cinecast came from. If you go back and look, all those early shows, they felt like they had, they had to have podcast in it somewhere, right? Yeah. So cast was very common. And we had Cinecast in about maybe 60 or 70 episodes in. So into that first year of Cinecast, we got a cease and desist letter from a company right. called Cinecast.
1: Was oh. it a podcast company?
2: No, they weren't. They weren't. But they were in, they made a product that was related to theatrical distribution somehow. I think they were the company that made the technology that did the ad shows before movies. Oh, wow. And I remember, fortunately, I went to college. One of my roommates became a lawyer. So I had someone I could get advice from. And at the time, he was like, we could probably fight this because we're not sure there's reasonably any confusion here, or we could argue that there's not going to be any confusion between your two ventures. But then he said something really smart, and I guess this will be advice to any young podcasters or aspiring podcasters out there. He said, "But you know what? you should take this opportunity to come up with a new name anyway that nobody else has used that is unique to you and that you guys can trademark. yeah, to Sam and I, it was like, um oh, we're going to we're going to have to give up Cinecast, but that's who we are. It's the greatest name ever. It's the greatest movie podcast name ever. We're never changing it. But we took that to heart, and we embarked on. A search a lot of conversations about what our new show title would be and i'll just i'll conclude by telling you that we we went so far speaking of really generic bad names we went so far as to announce at one point that the new name of cinecast was going to be the cinema show
3: but that's that's what Ben's hey, saying. It's clear. You know what it's about. Right,
2: yeah. I know. But we got so much pushback from our audience about how wow. terrible it was that we said, <laughs> okay, we take it back. We're Everything's back on the table. And then a listener, a listener sent in film spotting. A student, I think he was at Florida State, and he said, what about film spotting? And we went, yeah. Danny Boyle's cool. Right. Wow. We like train spotting. It wasn't yeah. an homage to him explicitly. That wasn't the point of it. But... It worked, and we said, "Okay, we'll be film spotting."
1: Yeah, I never—I didn't even put that together. Of course, it's sort of a train spotting reference. It definitely sort of. is.
2: Boyle, when I interviewed him the first time, made a joke about it when he heard the name of our show. Like, don't you owe me something? Don't you owe me some cash?
1: No, and you said, "No, I owe Irvin Welsh something." That's yeah. right, Danny. You didn't come up with that name. <laughs> it's just—I uh, just like the idea of being there like that early. That, like Ben says, you could just be called film pie. Pod- There's like, um. Off menu, my favorite new podcast. Mm-hmm. Do you know, off menu. No, I don't think so. British comedians talking to other British comedians about their favorite food. At uh, one point, Bob Mortimer, his episode, he says, "Like, well, you know, I, I'm pre yogurt. Like, there wasn't yogurt when I was a kid. Like that, I was a, I was alive when that got introduced. Like when they were like, check this out, this new product, yogurt. I think about that. That's that's what you guys were. You guys were like, you're pre yogurt, so early in podcasting. Yep." Yeah. The film spotting connection,
0: the title connection was one thing. And then I remember that millions had some important place in the lore of film spotting, in the, in the development, in the birth. But this is, we've been trying to do, we still have failed to do the in-person episode. This is over yeah. Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were supposed to, you guys were supposed to come to New York to do your anniversary show in 2020. We had an episode scheduled on the books. Then we, of course, did... Oh, yeah. Romancing the Stone with you and Josh Larson uh, over Zoom during deepest, darkest pandemic. And then uh, you finally got to do your New York show uh, about a month ago, but both your schedules end up being too uh, wild and the turnaround time too quick. So we will have Josh on at a second time because four people, five people on a Zoom tends to uh, make brains explode. But we definitely want to have you on for this, especially because I feel like you have not having heard the Millions episode until today, but I feel like I heard it invoked so many times as like what you were talking about, the episode where you put the pressure on yourselves of like, we got to keep this thing tight. Mm -hmm. We got to limit our thoughts as much as possible. And you and Sam Van Hogren, who was your co-host at the time, uh, still producer of the show, were like fairly dismissive of the movie. We were. But in a pretty quick rushed way, like (laughs) a kind of hand wave kind of way. And I feel like you'll talk about this as like, we maybe never gave millions a full shake. I don't know where you stand on it today, but it was impossible listening to the episode to imagine you not digging into this movie more deeply.
2: That was was my takeaway listening to that review as well. I felt like I had to go back and hear what my thoughts were then. I rewatched the movie first, of course, so I could have completely new fresh thoughts and then I could see how they lined up and I could try to reconcile those a little bit. And there's no doubt if we talked about this movie today, look, 18 years, almost 18 years since that review, there's a reason why I had very mixed feelings about putting the entire archive online and making it available. People can go back and listen to those shows. I haven't listened to that show since I recorded it and edited it in March 2005. And I don't particularly want to go back and listen to even the shows I did last week or a month ago or a year ago, but especially those early shows that was almost 18 years ago. And I'd like to think I've become a better talker about movies and a better podcaster. I'd also like to think I've become a better watcher of movies in that time. And over the course of doing a thousand episodes or so also though, you're seeing the movie for the second time. And even if you haven't seen it in 18 years, You're obviously able to pay more specific attention to choices that are being made because you're not caught up in or maybe distracted by the narrative and what is or isn't making sense. And there are elements of this movie I think we'll probably dive into that maybe don't always make total sense or that you're questioning. So I watched it the second time, had my new reaction to the film, and then I went back and listened to that 10-minute profound conversation on Cinecast number two and the, the long and the short of it is we were a little bit too hard on the movie. I think the allegation of cynicism on Danny Boyle's part, which is an allegation we made at the time, was probably going too far. I think his heart is absolutely in the right place with this film. But the bottom line is I ended up having the exact same overall experience, which is I was mostly enjoying the film. And I think the last 20 minutes or so are catastrophically bad.
0: Interesting. I I I had a real uh roller coaster experience watching this. I saw this. I took my sister to see this, and she would have been uh s- been really small, seven right? at the time. Yeah. When this came out. So she was even younger than the two characters. But like, you know, I was uh uh, in high school, taking my much younger sister to see this movie, seeing it with her. I think it was kind of exciting any time there was sort of like an elevated kids movie like this, an auteurist right. kids movie. Because I would take my sister to see anything that was appropriate for her to see. I like going to see movies. It was a bonding thing for two of us. But anytime there was like, oh, there's, there's a kids movie playing at the sunshine I can take you to. Right. That felt kind of cool. Um... And it was, like, exciting that he was doing this. You know, David, you and I talk so much about, like, liking our auteurs to, like, do one of each kind of movie. You have to make a space movie at some point. You have to make a period epic. You have to make a this. You have to make a that. The kids' movie, I think, is a thing that a lot of serious filmmakers feel above doing. And those who figure out how to do it well and in their style, it's kind of a really special thing. And, I, yes, I remember being really excited for this. And then walking out and feeling a little deflated without thinking it was bad. And then in like the 18 years since, I mostly just think back on that as like being like, oh, that movie is fine, but it's kind of like, you know, a little bit of a, a deflated balloon. It's like charming enough. It's sweet. It didn't really work. And then? And then like every 10 minutes watching this, I would oscillate between being like, this thing's great and feeling kind of exhausted by it. That's
1: fair. Well, that's the Danny
0: Boyle experience a little bit. Being super charmed or feeling like sugar poisoning or whatever. And I, I think I evened out on like maybe respecting it a little more than I did at the time. Mm-hmm. It's got some like, I mean, the, the good elements of this movie, I think, are incredibly good. And I think the biggest thing watching it at present day is uh, I have more appreciation for it just because it feels kind of unfathomable for someone to make this today. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Or certainly make it with as many bold choices, not surprisingly, that Boyle makes. I mean, this movie could be made by any number of filmmakers. You could take the exact same storyline. Chris Columbus could make this movie, Absolutely. and it would be the most saccharine, pedestrian, but probably uplifting movie that would send people out of the theater feeling great you know, that anyone's ever, it could be, it it could be that experience and it's not, and it's on the whole, maybe a little bit unsatisfying, but the highs, I think you're right. Some of the highs really are high. They're really good. And I didn't fully appreciate them back in 2005, the way I did watching it a little closer now. And there's another element that I got just completely wrong. I can listen back to and say, well, that's the experience I had in 05, but I, I think I was just genuinely wrong about it, which is I thought the way Boyle depicted that neighborhood estate, it was, it was a little bit snarky and a little bit cynical itself, as in, you know, it's so yeah, gorgeously yeah. rendered and everything so perfect, but also he, he likes to kind of show you the power lines behind everything, just muddying up the view a little bit, and it's so about conformity, it felt, that I thought he was applying some commentary to that and kind of making us think that he's... He's having a bit of a laugh at at this type of living, at people who aspire to live in these types of places. I watch that again now, and I realize I, I think I was applying my own sense of, oh, it's a simulacrum of the perfect life. Boyle doesn't portray it that way at all. I think he I think he's genuine about this being this step up from where they were, that we are all aspirational, I suppose, in that way. We want a "quote unquote" better life, and I don't think he's—I don't think he's dogging or he's trying to uh, critique in any way the people who live in that environment. I was just wrong about that.
1: David, had you seen this when it came out? Uh, so I did not see this. Came out when I was in college in England, and I think I was—I was like disdainful of the very idea of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this kind of like, what? Why is Danny Boyle making a kids' movie? And then the reviews were tepid or whatever, they were, right? I mean, the reviews yeah. were sort of shrugged like. And so I avoided it in cinemas. Um, but then my brother, who is younger than me, um, saw it in theaters and was like, Millions, millions is good. You know, like, check out millions. My brother has always uh, stanned this movie. And I did. And I liked it. But I think I still was a bit too much of a cynical college student y guy mm-hmm. to really lock into this movie unabashedly. Especially because it was Danny Boyle. I was still like like this sort of I had the hangover of being like an Empire magazine reader. And I was just <laughs> like, why isn't he making a cool movie? Like, you know. Sure. Sure, you know, you you know, okay, fine. You proved some sort of a point here. Like you can make a kid's movie and still have it be interesting. Right. Like, you know, they, they, they're like, they, I think I was projecting on this movie too. Uh, it is funny how a movie about a nice boy who gets money and wants to help people. We're all just kind of like, what's, what's this movie's game? You know, yeah. come on. what is it trying how to tell dare me? They? You know, like, how dare they? You know, like, what's all this sincerity? I don't understand. And now I rewatch it and I'm just like, yeah, I think this is, I think it's a, I think it's a very good movie. This kid stinks.
3: <laughs> ben, <laughs> He stinks. You don't like him. He's no. A he's not doing the right thing. Come on, morality. Wait, bah. what would the
1: right thing be? Okay, Ben, what would you do? You think he should just like he should blank check it up? He should buy like ten TVs. Of, Mr. Like, Macintosh. You know, so Ben's pieces. the brother. Ben's the brother. Basically, oh,
3: absolutely. I'm buying an apartment, hundred <laughs> percent. An apartment. <laughs> <laughs> You're really swinging there. That's what he goes and does in the movie at one point. He goes and he's, you know, checking out what he but can wise do with investment. money. Yeah, absolutely. No, listen, this is like one of those classic things where I watch this and I'm like, I would have done everything different. It all would have worked out. Yeah. I would have made actually more money. I would have invested and been set for life if that had happened to me.
1: Oh, you, you would have invested well. Sure, 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 sure. In 2005, too. No, no trouble on the horizon there economically. And <laughs> no. I have a hard time believing
0: you would have been responsible with the money. I believe you would have had a good time.
3: Yeah, I, you probably would have seen me wheeling like a, a, a wheelbarrow full of cigarette packs. <laughs> you would have and been booze. like like the brother.
2: Hired out your friends to be Secret Service agents. Yeah. You definitely would have, yes. Oh, you
0: yeah. would
3: have hired some guys. I would have had a golden slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just is upsetting to watch this because I understand he's saying like, this is not right, but it's, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the, the rebel in me, but I'm like, th- this is truly like money that you should be taking, you should not be giving it away. It would have gotten burned. Like, I'm totally with the dad. I don't know. What are, you, what are your guys' thoughts?
1: Look, because we're doing Danny Boyle, we've talked about this scenario multiple times now, and I just... I think if I found a bag of money, it would be a no from me. It would be a, you know... I, I, hello, I found a bag of money. Can someone come collect it from me? I, I just... I think I would immediately be too stressed out.
0: I don't know. I'm I sorry. always... Land on that side, David. Every time we've talked about a big bag of money movie, yeah. like like simple plan stresses me right. out so much. This is the one right, movie where I'm right. like, maybe keep it.
1: Maybe keep it.: Yeah, I don't know. It fell off a train it fell the, the falling <laughs> off, you're right. that is. That does feel like provenance more than, oh, there's like a dead body next to this. And that's the
3: key. That's that's alarming. Yeah. What has the government ever
1: done for you? Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? This isn't a government thing. It's more a, I'm worried someone wants this and that that person is unscrupulous. Like that would always be my fear. That is one way though. The choice is very
2: different from those other scenarios, right? Where this boy is a boy, and he's genuinely naive and innocent, and he has no sense that there's any nefariousness attached to this money. And because of his imagination and these flights of fancy and the people he randomly sees appear, he thinks God really did send him a bunch of money. So for at least a good chunk of the movie, he's not making a choice. He he doesn't have to think in those terms, right? Right. Yeah, no, but it is true. Most of the other, like, uh, uh,
0: big bag of money movies... The setup is always you find it next to a dead person, right? Like no country and shallow grave, simple plan. There's a body and a bag. And the question is, do you take it or not? And it's like, you know, pretty bad omen that someone died trying to get away with this money. Right. Doesn't it doesn't pretend well for you. Uh, But this this kid's in a cardboard box. He's having a grand old time. Big bag of money flies out of the sky, lands on his head, bunks him. If anything, he's owed that money for the injury. He got bunked in the noggin.
1: True. I guess you could call British Rail and be like, hi, a bag hit me in the head. His beautiful fort wouldn't say bag of money. He would just say, beautiful fort
0: crushed. Those things don't just grow on trees. He has to build a new one, he has to buy new masking tape. That takes money, money that is in a bag that hit him on the head.
1: Well, you see, maybe you do some creative accounting here where you're like, I itemized everything in the fort, you know, expenses, about 200 grand. So I'll just keep this. It's called Wash. It was about
0: six different boxes taped together. I don't know if you saw the (laughs) dimensions on that
1: thing. I remember thinking this movie was more explicitly about like the the, the the changeover of currencies right that there would be some and obviously that is that is the idea is that they have to spend it fast yeah but i had completely forgotten that element Me too me too oh really oh yeah. yeah well it was such a big deal when this movie came out because that was such a like you know topic of constant fucking unending debate in britain when i lived there Uh, will we ever change to the euro? Not in my country. None of these euro dollar, you know, I don't want to touch that kind of money. The queen must be on my money, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, uh, it really is just Boyle or, and I mean, it's a new screenwriter, but Boyle returning to like his favorite topic of the sort of, you know, you're presented with a moral slash immoral choice. What do you do? And for the first time, he's putting it in the hands of like a cherubic little boy with freckles on his cheeks who uh lost his mother and wants to do wants to make people happy. And I think that's nice, Ben. This kid's exhausting
3: with this, all this saint business.
1: <laughs> ben, you're related to a saint.
3: That's true. <laughs> I forgot. I
2: do love the dad energy you're bringing to
3: this. You're like I I'm owed this. I'm yeah. taking it. This is like this is the kind of thing in life that never happens. And you should you should with open arms, accept it and and say thank you and spend that damn money. It is such a funny Danny Boyle balance where you're like the
0: fact that it truly falls out of the sky. You're like there is the element that feels like magical in this movie. And then it's cut with a villain character who feels like he could be out of train spotting, who is not pitched to a children's film at all. An aspect that I kind of admire, that he's genuinely scary, and he's so scary that it almost feels like he might be a hallucination as well. There was a part of the movie where I started tracking, has anyone else actually seen this guy? I had forgotten that the other brother sees him in the first meeting, because basically every other time this guy corners the main kid, it's in isolation.
2: Yeah. He's at the school. He's in the hallway. Nobody notices him, right? Right. The attic even later. Honestly, yes. the first time I watched it, and even re-watching it a little bit, there was a part of me that thought, there's no way we're supposed to believe he was really in the attic. This is some same. kind of vision that he's having, but no, he's he's really in the attic.
0: And even at Selfridges, he just kind of shows up and then mm-hmm. disappears just as quickly. Uh, but it
2: does feel like, is, is this guy just as tangible as the saints are? That's how he appears to him the first time, right? He he yeah. comes over, the, he, he appears the same way all the other saints do, and you can tell that he is Damien's confused that first time, whether or not he's really there.
0: Right now, mind you, the older brother also sees, getting ahead in the plot, their mother when she reappears. So, like this movie does put forward that these two things might be equally real.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I, Yeah. I don't. I mean, I like the sort of childlike, you know, blurry line between yeah. uh, imagination and reality thing. Uh, I think that's fun. Isn't it funny though how he
2: how he does portray the villain as scary, certainly scarier than the Home Alone bad guys. Yes. Though I was thinking about them too while I was watching this, but he doesn't ever cross that threshold where he really seems evil or he seems like there's imminent danger facing them. Sure, he doesn't. He doesn't. Threaten them in a way that this this guy in real life, I'll say, really would. Even the whole thing about the money at the end—it's sort of like I'm going to call you on the phone, and then you're going to deliver the money to my door. If this guy's really the badass he kind of carries himself as, he he'd just come into the house and grab the money, right? He's not worried about the dad or these other people that they don't cross that line. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's because they they didn't want to. My sense of it is they wanted him to be scarier than the Home Alone bad guys. Boyle needed some authenticity, if you will, that way. He wanted to add that element, but he also didn't want it to cross over into shallow grave or rated R territory. He wanted kids to still feel okay. That's the thing. If you ever project the sense
0: that this guy murdering the kid is on the table, the movie becomes unwatchable. It does. If you ever get the vibe that that guy has it in him, which I don't think you do feel that way. I think you feel like this is a dangerous guy who is doing everything he can to intimidate this child, but that is maybe a line he wouldn't
3: cross in actual. He's not way. like a professional criminal, right? Because they're the storyline of how this robbery went down. Like these are just regular, like regular blue-collar guys that decide to steal this money.
0: Yeah, it's the thing I like about this movie too. Is that. When you get the explanation of where the money came from, it does feel like that could be its own heist movie. Totally. It, it feels like a, a, a British countryside Logan Lucky or something.
1: Question about Home Alone, about the wet and or sticky bandits. I know they rebrand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they discuss killing him, right? Like, I feel like they do have more. They might. Outward malevolence, even though they are also like, you know, cartoon animals that get bonked in the head, right? Like, I feel like there's one point at which they discuss, like, shooting him. Is that maybe I'm making that up. Maybe they never get that intense.
0: No, no, no. I think that's the weird balance. If if the guys act
1: like cartoon
0: characters, then they're allowed to say, I'm going to kill that kid because it doesn't feel real. Whereas if you hire the guy in this movie and tell him to give a real performance, then he cannot imply that he would kill the kid. Like the wet bandits want to kill Kevin McAllister in the same way that like Wiley e. Coyote wants to catch the Roadrunner. Right.
1: But yeah, he is, he's scary in that kid way. Adults are scary, you know? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, especially adults you don't know who are asking you kind of vague questions, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, he, he works. His name, he's the poor man, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the credit he gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a cool credit, actually. Uh, Christopher Fulford is the uh the name of the actor
0: uh david you were sort of starting to get into this but uh e-day an entirely fictional thing correct it, a fictional
1: thing that but, nothing but, I mean, even close to this ever happened well Eng- england never entered the euro right. and never came close but uh, but obviously when i was a kid uh most of europe did enter the euro and they did have you know, a day like this. I mean, it would be a thing where it was a very long extended window of two currencies, though. I don't think it would ever be as drastic as this movie makes it seem. For sure. Where it's like, spend them if you got a man like that's You know, like it was always, you know, I think I even went to France or wherever and you would, you know, you could pay in both francs and euros for a while. You know, it's like, but I guess there always is there is always going to be a day where that's that. Like where it's like, okay, you know, the end like we were we're switching to one i know the pushback on the euro was happening like early
0: you know pretty much as soon as the idea was presented it was pushed back at the time this movie was written did they think this was going to happen or did this almost feel like a Possible. satirical thing to project that
1: because no. this movie was written in the mid-2000s during the blair government and the blair government was ostensibly pro-euro was ostensibly like they kind of did this, you know, two thing, two way thing of like, we, you know, we're, we're, we're supportive of entering the Euro someday, but we would need many economic things to change for that to happen. And, you know, it was kind of a kick the can thing because it was always pretty obvious that Britain, British people, there was never going to probably be majority support for it. Uh, there, you know, people can read about the economics of the Euro people, you know, Black Wednesday, people never got over Black Wednesday in the 90s. And I think that was, you know, what scared. And then after the 2008 recession, that, that, the, that there was never any, any political support for entering the euro. Uh, so this is before then. So it's a little, there's probably like a little bit of a like fantasy of well, maybe one day, you know, right?
2: I feel like I saw somewhere though, that Boyle said, it was almost like if we don't make this movie fast enough, then this will all be, it, it'll look all so silly. Because there, hmm. there was this idea that it was imminent somehow. Or that the euro was going to take over. And even though there would be tons of pushback, that, that that would just happen at some point. I thought I read that comment from Boyle somewhere.
1: You know, I'm sure, I'll dig into the dossier. I'm, you know, I'm sure there were people who figured it was inevitable right, because, of, because the mainland had done it. And in many ways... Look, I mean I like my politics on this are sort of agnostic. I, at the time I was pro euro because it just seemed good. Mm-hmm. And now I, you know, I just know that's sort of like not a thing anymore, but also like I remember being a kid and like going to Italy and you know getting a, you know, one 10,000, you know, lira note and you're like, "Oh, what's this?" and they're like, "Oh, no, it's like a dollar." And you'd be like, what? Yeah, like And like, once the euro came about, the euro is this very boring currency. Like the, the money is very boring looking. Mm-hmm. There's something about it that feels a little fake. But like, obviously, it made life so much easier to visit yeah. Europe and use the euro. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll just throw in
2: that one thing I did think about this time that I certainly didn't think about in 05 is that obviously the whole euro aspect of this is is the thing that drives the plot forward and the money. That's why it is fundamentally there. But it also does support Damien as a character and his mindset when we meet him, right? This idea, I believe that he probably has been obsessed with saints for some time before we meet him at the beginning of the film. I don't think he's already started to see saints. And so this combination, this Mm. confluence of things happening in his life... His mother has just died. How world-changing is that? Now we're moving to an entirely new neighborhood, leaving everything behind that I knew. Oh, and on top of it, money is no longer money. You know, everything right. about the world you inhabit, it could not have changed more in kind of a blink of an eye for this kid. So it, it, it isn't just this whimsical thing that it is, that, oh, he sees Francis of Assisi. No, he's... He's manifesting his his grief. He's dealing with trauma and and all of the things that are changing all the uncertainty and chaos around him,
0: yeah. and I, you know the fact that it's three years between him and his brother, the difference mm. between nine and twelve in this movie is huge, where I, not just how pragmatic the brother is and sort of, you know, trying to approach the idea of this money like an adult. What's the responsible thing to do? What's the profitable thing to do? But even just him sort of like (laughs) keeping his catalog of nipples on his computer, you know, needing to like explain how the world works in black and white terms at all times, you know, even just the like, do you not understand the implications of this woman being invited over to the house and dad laughing at her and all this sort of stuff. It's like the, the lead boy is sort of at the last age where he would still process all of these things in that way, what you're Mm -hmm. saying, Adam, right? Where he would look at all these things and come to a magical conclusion, you know, where he would still need to use saints to Mm -hmm. process his emotions maybe in such a vivid way.
1: There's also just the childish, the sympathetic thing of, like, hearing these stories about saints and thinking them as sort of superheroes because... Those stories are so lurid and supernatural. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and so, like, that he's talking to, like, St. Gonzaga, where, like, when you read that story of what happened to that guy, you're like, Jesus Christ this is horrible. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, yeah. but at the, to him, he can sort of filter it into this kind of, you know, superheroic, you know, vaguely exciting, vaguely frightening kind of uh, idea.
0: Well, because also, if you're a kid, people around you, and if you're a kid who grows up in the church, people around you are saying like, Spider-Man's not real. Put down that comic. By the way, this guy sure. is real. Sure, right. Yeah. You know, they're pointing at like biblical stories. They're telling you tales of saints that all have these magical elements in them, you know, equally kind of inspiring and terrifying elements.
1: And they're like, no, 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 but this actually happened. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it, like English people get spooked by religion i don't mean to paint my uh other home country with a broad brush but i do think that's true uh obviously this boy's catholic these are you know hence all the saints and all the you know gore it's such a gory religion and i you know i say that with respect and fear of that religion but I do think that must have made some viewers in Britain kind of uncomfortable, where they're like, oh, we don't get in for all that, like you know, like this sort of like <laughs> super super sainty stuff." Like, but because it's a kid, you can you can forgive it in a way, like his kind of simplicity about it and his way of rendering everything sort of sweetly. Um, or maybe you're Ben and you think like this kid's a little twerp and you wish the train <laughs> had like wiped him off the map. I don't know, like maybe not. I love this little kid. I'm so I, I pro th- this little kid. And th- I'm th- so th- yeah. touchy about kid actors often. You know? I think <sighs> it's a pretty
0: know. phenomenal performance. I mean, Adam, in your episode, you yeah. were saying, you were sort of complaining about the kid being like so perfectly precocious. But I think it's one of the most successful elements of this movie that this kid is so unself aware in his performance. He feels so unstudied, he feels so real and earnest. You genuinely believe that he believes everything he's saying, that I think anything about this kid that could feel contrite on paper, mm-hmm. he sells so thoroughly. He I makes agree. it feel very natural and honest, and he's so funny. Just his his way of being is funny.
2: He is. He is. I think it is hard to play naive and innocent or it's very easy to make naive and innocent be kind of silly and dumb and boring and This kid isn't, I don't, I didn't feel that way. I I am with you, Griffin, in that I constantly felt the authenticity of those moments that that needed to, to be authentic and that he didn't, part of it is I don't think he overplays anything. No, there's a lot of emotion underscoring everything that's happening. And as I just said, there's real grief and real trauma behind it. He, he doesn't play any of that in the way that I don't think you should as an actor. It's, it's there. If you if you do the lines, if you bring to it that authenticity and honesty, the screenplay and everything else around it will do the work for the audience. We don't need the actor to lean into that. And he doesn't. Yeah, that having not been said. I don't think it's like a
0: Kuleshev effect thing, which can oftentimes Agreed. happen with no. kids where you're sort of treating them like trained animals. Yeah. He's not a just blank slate. No, I, I, you feel the thoughts going on behind his eyes, but he's not playing any of that, as mm-hmm. you said. Yes um david let's crack open the dossier because i still want to find out how he found this fucking kid
1: right well that's true but also of course it begins with frank cotrell Vo- Boyce, uh, the writer of this film who uh had done lots of sort of british soap stuff but i feel like is probably best known for his many many collaborations with michael winterbottom mm-hmm. and this is like this is kind of coming off of them working together multiple times they did welcome to sarajevo they did the claim which is a crazy movie if anyone's have you seen the claim adam i had a uh, sort of a forgotten uh movie it's like it takes the um mayor of casterbridge the thomas hardy novel but like puts it in immigrant california gold mining country it's with wes bentley and sarah polly and peter mullen and it's like oh. one of those movies where you're like god how do you get the money for this like it's sort of like big And it was a total flop. Yeah. Uh, But then they did Twenty Four Hour Party People, which is a a great film, maybe Michael Winterbottom's best movie uh, about the Madchester scene in the early uh, '90s uh, with Steve Coogan. And then they did Code Forty Six, which is like a weird sci-fi movie with Tim Robbins and Samantha Morton. I was seeing all of these because I was very in on Winterbottom, Mm -hmm. and like these were just like cool British, you know, art movies in the in the early two thousands. Um Tristram Shandy yeah. too, right?
2: Didn't he write Tristram Shandy?
1: Yes. I think that's the last movie he did with Winterbottom and he also did other weird stuff like Hillary and Jackie and Revengers Tragedy which was like this uh insane comeback attempt by Alex Cox, the uh yes. Uh, you know Re- Repo Man guy with Eddie Izzard and, and it's, you know it's a really interesting movie. Uh anyway, um he was a, the, the thing about him is like he also does not scream, I have a whimsical children's film in me. You know, neither right. of them do. He's not finding some guy who's like, all right, here I am, a British children's laureate. You know, maybe I'll give you something. Uh, they both clearly wanted to do something different.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, but you talk about, like, the cynicism you approach this movie with, David, is like, why is fucking Danny Boyle making a kid's movie? The fact that Danny Boyle's movie before this is 28 Days later, like his yes. gnarliest movie, his like grimiest, you know, sort of lo fi film. And that I know there's Code 46 before it as well, but like Frank Cottrell Boyce is coming off of 24 hour party people. Like you have these two guys who basically in like 2002, 2003 made these movies that like crossed over that were really exciting and full of fucking like piss and vinegar. And then now they're like, we're going to take you to the countryside where a young boy who talks to saints questions how he can do good in the world.
1: Right. Absolutely. I don't know. Frank Ultra Boys basically says no one wanted to make this movie until Danny Boyle got interested uh, and picked up the script. And I don't know, like he uh, probably was attracted to the script because of the writer, Mm -hmm. less because of the, you know, uh, theming or whatever. Um, but he loved the idea of his, the way he puts it is it's the most shocking thing I could have done. Uh, uh his favorite filmmaker is Nicholas rogue. He talks about Nicholas rogue all the time and he loves the Nicholas rogue made the witches. Like, sure. you know, it's like, Whoa, he made a kid's movie. And like, Whoa, this is what that was like. This is his version of a kid's movie. So I think he was just intrigued by the, the sheer perversity of him doing a children's movie at that point in his career. Uh, and also as we've mentioned before, Danny Boyle has a religious Irish Catholic mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he loves that sort of element of the story. Um, and he wants to tell it sincerely. We've talked about how he sort of grew up a strict Catholic boy and wanted to be a priest. The classic origin story of many a filmmaker, uh, so they they like the idea of the like theatricality and drama of Catholicism and these Gothic tales about saints and how violent they are and they probably both felt that way when they were kids they were probably both into those kinds of stories and so it resonated for him.
0: This is also this movie is one of those cases uh, that I rarely happens now but weirdly happened like a lot in the 70s where he writes the script they make this film. He adapts his own script into a novel. The novel is published before the movie comes out, but is derived from the screenplay, knowing the movie was being made. And then the book becomes pretty popular and wins awards. So this is like a movie that you kind of would believe is based on some pre-existing book. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who have the false memory of, well, I remember reading that book before I saw the movie. So it was based off a book but it was actually sort of like the love story thing where it was almost like a reverse marketing tactic for the movie. And the book I feel like maybe was even
1: better received
0: than the movie was.
1: Yeah, the book won the Carnegie Medal, which is like the biggest children's book award that exists. Yeah. Like when I was a kid in Britain, if a book won the Carnegie Medal, I read it. Like, because it was sort of like, you know, okay, that's like the the best children's book.
0: It's just kind of wild that that's like, ostensibly like a, a junior novelization of this movie that was just released before as its own thing.
1: Yeah. No, it is funny. It's kind of a 2001 A Space Odyssey situation. Yeah, it was sort yes. of like, I think the, the book actually came out in Britain before the film. I don't know. You know, anyway, it's, it's very funny. Another thing that's interesting, Boyle says his dad moved uh, the family to a better neighborhood when he was a kid. Uh, this is Boyle talking. My dad was a working class laborer. He was a big man. He worked all his life with his brawn. He worked in a power station as a, as a at a stove boiler. And he was smart, and he knew enough to make sure I didn't follow him. So he, you know, moved them within Manchester to a better neighborhood. So I think the way he puts it is this was kind of a gesture of love to mm-hmm. her his mother and his father. like he he identifies with that too. It's one of those things like I love Danny Boyle and, and Adam, you've talked to him. I've never uh, interviewed him, but it feels like you're like, so why'd you make this movie? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I thought it'd be fun to make a kid's movie. And then like two minutes later, he's like, so my mother and father moved, you know, and you're like, oh, this <laughs> right. is, like, clearly is some speaking to something very deep in you. You know, it's not just like a bit of a whim for you. Yeah. He's a sincere fella, which I like. Uh, the original script was set in the 60s, which is crazy. Oh, that's wild. And so instead, they decided to modernize it to the weird point of fantasy, right? Of like actually setting it in a sort of uh, near future. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, very interested in the sort of lower middle class housing estate uh, milieu, which was something he just thinks was not being like represented in British film at all at the time. Like that, that, you know, that setting.
0: Yeah. So is the is the notion that if it had been set in the sixties, the whole sort of like currency conversion element wouldn't have been part of it? It would have just been bag of money. I assume so,
1: yes. Yeah. It, it would have just been what if some kids found millions of pounds for sure. Uh, in a bag of money. Um he thought it was too close to whistle down the wind, if you guys know that movie, which is like kids find a criminal in a barn, he's played by Alan Bates uh for whatever reason he thought that the period setting made it feel like whistle down the wind which is not i don't think that's a movie that non-brits know that well no i've never heard of it it's not a bad movie the other thing he considered which he's talked about a lot is that he wanted to turn it into a musical and he wishes they had like that's his big regret he thinks they wouldn't have gotten the money for it but he wishes they'd had the chutzpah he says this constantly because i feel like
0: Basically, anytime he does an interview and people ask him, "You've covered so many different genres. What do you still want to do?" He always says, "I I wish I had done a full out musical. It's like the biggest to do on my list. The closest I came was Millions. I think the movie would have connected with people more if I had done it." He always says, "Like we didn't have the courage to commit to that." At different times, he said he wanted Liam Gallagher to write the songs.
1: Uh, Noel Gallagher. I'm assume. sorry. Not I'm Liam. sorry. Liam Gallagher doesn't write any I'm sorry. songs. I mean, he does write some songs, but they're very, uh, they're very simple. No offense. To me, okay.
0: Maybe he wanted yeah, bad no, songs. We, maybe he wanted bad songs in the
1: movie. Yeah, maybe he wanted like really <laughs> shitty songs. Maybe they, maybe the no, songs. I should mean, suck. it's a Manchester. It's set in the suburbs of Liverpool, actually. But you know, it's set near Manchester. Like, I I can see him thinking that. Like, what if we do this sort of Northern Soul movie, right? Where yeah. we have like, you know, music by Oasis and stuff. Like, that sounds great. But that also sounds like a movie that costs twice as much money and can't be as kind of like impish and small scale as this thing, right? Like it would have to be a pretty blown out thing at that point.
0: Yeah. And I think there's like the Ken Loach element to what he's doing, obviously with the magical realism on top of it. Right. 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 right, right, Yeah. That like, I don't know how you square that in a movie that's already like trying to combine a little bit of like kitchen sink with some magical realism and then also having people break in a song that Herman said, this feels like a movie where they could announce tomorrow, oh, they're like doing this at New Horizons as a musical. Right. Right. And suddenly it's like one of these bizarre musicals that becomes a Tony favorite off a movie that no one's thought about in 20 years. Like on stage, I could absolutely see this story working with songs. As a movie, I find it harder to picture.
2: Me too. I think that's fair. Uh, Either way, I would probably forgive some of its logic trespasses more if it was a musical. I think, it would, I think it would make more sense as a musical.
0: I wonder if that's what he's getting at when he says he wishes he had mm-hmm. done it. You know, and saying like, I kind of felt like that movie was tonally close to being a musical, but I just didn't have the courage to put right. the songs in. Mm-hmm. It's like, maybe that's just the plane of logic
1: he wanted to operate on. There's something more ecstatic uh, yes. about it. this is already a fantasy film in a way. He's seeing visions. He's it's it's set in an unreal moment. Right. That just
0: telegraphs it to the audience much more clearly.
1: And it's just funny that he does sunshine after this, but then he does uh, Slumdog Millionaire where you're like, once again, it feels like you made kind of like a quarter of a musical. Like, yeah. Why not just go all the way, buddy? I mean, yesterday is probably the closest he's actually come to finally being like, I shall make a musical.
0: Correct. He keeps saying that he's actively developing Miss Saigon, which sounds
1: interesting. I mean, look, I don't like that show that much, and I don't know that Danny Boyle should be making a movie out of it. But, like you say, interesting. i like, could be interesting. see what he does. It-, it is funny how much Slumdog
0: feels like him figuring out the way to make... This type of movie that connects with
1: people. He pitched this movie to Pathé, who financed it as a tr- cross between Train Spotting and Emily. So, if that's if that makes sense, yeah, it kind of does make sense. Like the whimsical visuals.
0: Yeah, I mean Emily, one of those weird examples of like an R-rated children's film. It's like ostensibly
1: a kids movie
0: for grown-ups.
1: Right, right. Um, so Alex Attell, as you said, Griff uh the, the the main actor here mm-hmm. um he says uh Kelly McDonald, Frida Pinto and this guy are the three times he cast someone the second they walked into the audition right like those are the three sort of thunderbolt uh-huh. casting decisions he made he was 8 years old uh, apparently there was another kid who was a sort of more professional better actor better honed uh, he doesn't say who, obviously. Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, most people, yeah. yeah, right? Who is like, I found me back. He's just all hunched over. He was dwarfing uh, it. No. He walked in with shoes on his knees. <laughs> Everyone was like, "He's done it again." He's, he he told, told Danny he'd been living as an eight year old for yeah. for an entire year for twelve years. <laughs> no, he uh, he like a lot of people were pushing into cast what I assume was more of a established kid actor sure. kid. And Danny Boyle was just like I just he was so natural, like he just felt like the lack of profession was was good for him, and so uh, that's why he cast him. Whereas the kid he cast is uh, the older uh, brother, Lewis McGibbon, was a professional kid actor, and I think Danny Boyle was like he can he can fill out sure. the gaps, like he, he'll be he'll be the one who can sort of. Hit the you know hit his lines and have the timing right and know how movies work you know like like if as long as I've got one of them that's fine.
0: But also, I, I mean, the key to this movie is believing that this kid is sort of this guileless. And Alex Attell, none of these sound like line readings. You no. watch the movie and you kind of can't believe he was able to get a second take out of him. You know, because it just feels like, well, this kid's just saying this shit. And there's also the big factor, which is. Just, this kid has an unbelievable punum. Yeah. Like, the fact that the poster for this movie is just this kid's damn freckle face, some unknown eight-year-old, and the poster is just him smiling because it's like, huh, that is, that is an interesting-looking kid. And for how much of the movie's got to be him sort of, like, looking at things and thinking about them
3: and reacting,
0: he's just got a funny look.
3: Yeah, it makes it hard to get so mad at him, but I still do. Man. <laughs> <Ben. laughs>
1: Yeah, he's he's got a sweet little face. Uh I think he's great. Boyle says he'd never really directed kids before, right? Is that true? Like he probably hadn't. There's uh, kids the, the, in the the, earlier the
0: baby puppet, The train baby puppet spotting, but other than that, it, yeah,
1: sh- sure. So, uh he says like at first he was being like very interventionist, right? Mhm. Giving lots of specific direction and he the way he puts it which I like is like you get your fingerprints all over them. Like and, and It feels like what he really just wanted was natural performances, you know, as much as he could get them. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like the, the, the quote from him is the best example of that is the scene where they look at the bras on the internet. If I told them what I think about bras as a 40 year old man on the internet, it gets very complicated. I just let them play it as they wanted to. Like, you know, they're all, they're responsible for that scene. Well,
0: and Boyle's opinions on bras, they are complicated. Very hot takes. Like, he yes. is not, yeah, right, exactly. That's a right. very specific. I think women should wear them upside down, and you're like, what does that mean, Danny? <laughs> What's the function? That You like that aesthetically?
1: He says the only time he ever lost his temper was the two kids were in one room, I was in another. They had to come through to the room I was in. They were mucking around. They'd been eating tons of mint chocolate biscuits and were wired, and I lost it and I uh, was about to go yell at them, and someone stopped him and said, like, they relax their kids. Like, wow. He you know, can't yell at them. But uh, I think he did a great job. I'm trying to think if he ever directed kids again. Not really again. I mean, there's, a, kid, there's a pivotal kid in Steve Jobs. Slumdog. And then Slumdog... Well, they're, I, well, no, you're right. Of course, there are little kids in that. Right. Yes. yes I forgot. Yes. I was the like, first, oh, come on. No, no. I was like, Griffin, Dev Patel is I'm a good man. I'm not man. condescending <laughs> like, to yes. Dev Patel. I'm saying
0: the first <laughs> chunk of that movie is like no, three, you're right 8 eight-year-olds right. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, David, here's another question I had watching this movie. Mm. Is James Nesbitt like a much bigger star in the UK than I realize? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You're He's like a humongous me? deal.
1: I mean, humongous is maybe not, but he was in Cold Feet, which is one of those things that like everyone in Britain knows, but I guess no one in America knows, right? You you don't know what Cold Feet is, right?
0: No, I just think of him as like a great character actor and I'm
1: always happy when he shows up. And then I was digging around his Wikipedia. What do you know him from?
0: Well, like Bloody Sunday, obviously he's the lead in that.
1: Yes, I mean, obviously that's sort of an ensemble film and right. like uh, an experiential film, but he is absolutely the lead of it. Right, uh, and, and that then was, you know that's green is like career maker, but it's like no, I yeah.
0: know him. I know him from this. I know him from Waking the Divine. I know him from mm-hmm. The Hobbit. You know, yeah. He, like he I, he was think one of the of Hobbits. Him I mean, one of the like, dwarves, right? As like a supporting guy, and then in the UK, like on TV, he is a
1: leading man, right? Hundred percent, because I would say in Waking the Divine, he's he's pretty supporting in that yes. too, right? Like because yes. the the old guys are the Correct. the main guys in that. He was the star of a British of a of a television show called Cold Feet with Helen Baxendale uh, and other people you might recognize. Like that was like kind of a big, very popular soapy comedy drama, mm-hmm. uh, and he was like the sexy leading man in that. Okay, as you know, silly as that might sound to some. Um, And then, you know, he's had, yeah, he's our TV guy. You know, he's had a long, successful career. He had this like cop show called Murphy's Law. Uh, He did Jekyll, which was the Stephen Moffat update on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's he's always around. Uh, He's such a charming guy. I I I love James Nesbitt. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I love him. I th- I think it's a
1: pretty great performance. But he's
0: like he's the name in this movie. Not that it's being sold on his name.
1: He is the the only name in this movie. I would say because Daisy Donovan is you know sort of a somewhat known comedy star at that point. Maybe that's about it. Now she's married to Dan Mazur. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah,
2: Can I give you my favorite James Nesbitt bit in this movie? Please. Definitely. Because I think, David, you'll have to tell us, these two things seem especially British, or at least stereotypically British. And the Nesbitt one is the moment when he has to come to school because they've stolen money, they think. And he's taking them out of school and Anthony, the older brother, is pretending to cry and be all upset about it. And twice, Nesbitt is like, you shouldn't steal money, but really don't cry. <laughs> and then, and then right. a minute later, he's like, "Now let's stop crying. Oh, and also don't steal. It's, it's as if I'm not ready to deal with any emotions. I do yeah. not yes. want to face any of these emotions. And really, I'm more horrified that you're crying than I am that you stole money
1: it's much harder for him to take that they're crying. I mean, the most heartbreaking and clever shot in this movie is when the kid demands to get in bed with him early on. Yeah. And he pulls off the sheets and he's been hugging the pillows. The pillow. Uh, like that shot just like is uh, destroys me. Um, and, like, the pill is to replace his wife in bed uh, for people who haven't seen the movie. Um, Especially
0: because up until that point in the movie, he's not playing the morning at all. Nesbit's like, no. being so upbeat and happy for the kids. And it doesn't feel like he's hiding anything. You kind of can't believe this guy lost his wife recently.
2: Yeah. I, I even think it's, it's like that moment when... I do like that other moment he has where... They're in the car and everything's loaded up. And he does go back into the house one more time. And you hear on the, in the sound design, the mix, you hear uh, uh, his wife possibly saying something to the kids. But it's also like, figuratively, I don't want to live in this grief, but also literally, I don't want to live in this grief. I don't want to live in this space. Yeah. Let's go move somewhere else. I got I to gotta get out of here. The other British thing I had to ask you about, because it happens twice in two different school scenes, the exact same phrase is used. So, David, I can only assume that your posture is perfect. Because twice they say, is everyone sitting up nicely? What, kids weren't allowed to slouch at all at, at assemblies or in the classroom? I guess.
1: I mean, that, that feels very old-fashioned to me, but I can, I can imagine that being a thing. Uh, you know, keep your back straight. Uh, that, that's very old-fashioned to me. Did you guys in school
3: talk to, like, did you have a talking trash can? Did you do that bit? Of
1: course. I mean that oh, was that was a standard government issue at that point to have a talking sure. trash bin. <laughs> um yeah, no there there there's just which I like there is, you know, uh, the something driving this movie is that these kids don't know how to express how sad they are, which <laughs> is normal, like obviously they've gone through this thing that's very difficult to process. But that the culture around them is certainly not like, hey, have as much space as you like to talk about your feelings. Like, right. Then yeah. it is kind of like, all right, let's move on. Let's, you know, let's let's just, you know, no fussing. Yeah. The other running joke in the film, the my,
2: our mums died and they get whatever they want. Everybody hears that and instantly does just do whatever they have to do to get them out of the room and to not talk about it anymore
0: what i like about that adam is the implication is when when faced with that a kid saying my mom died these adults are so terrified of having to console this kid emotionally or get right. into it that they're like the easier thing to do is just give them whatever they want
3: yep it's kind of funny too that the kid thinks that he got the money like this logic of like even god feels so bad for him yeah that he he granted him you know all this money i i mean that like as a kid that would make sense right
1: right i love that as a kid he has that logic and you're like good kid logic but then every grown up is like is Are there a lot of Bible stories about God just giving people money? No, he doesn't do that. (laughs) Oh, my God. The more you learn about religion, he doesn't really shell out. Nesbitt has
3: some joke about that at one point where he's like, not known for giving money. That's right. (laughs) Known for taking, not for giving. Yeah, he's
1: always passing around a damn plate. You got to give him more cash. (laughs) (laughs) What's he spending it on? Would be funny if that was what they said at church. Like this money will be put in a bag that will then drop at the uh feet of a needy child. It's all gonna move yeah. around. Like it's yeah. The yeah.
2: movie does kind of have some fun at the expense of the Mormons, the latter-day Saints, too, right? That they're totally hypocritical.
1: Yeah, it does, which I found kind of shocking because like Britain doesn't really have a lot of Mormons. Obviously, I know Mormons go on missions and I'm sure they're there, but I, I Mormons might as well be space aliens to Britain. It's kind of mean to the Mormons. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, there is the the scene with the Mormons where they they take the fall, I guess, for, uh, you know, the kids pretending that's where the money came from, right? That's the uh, that's the gambit.
0: Yeah, I mean, we should, I guess, just say basically, you know, the beginning of this movie sets up this kid in his worldview, them moving to this new community. He likes to build cardboard forts. And go on sort of flights of fancy. I mean, this is like a place where Boyle's style really comes, uh, works to the movie's benefit. I think there's certain moments where Boyle overcranks it and the style becomes a little bit self-defeating where the movie could maybe just take it a little easier. But anytime the film is depicting the boy's imagination, especially that sequence where he's sort of at the very beginning imagining his cardboard fort being filled out with everything, and you're watching, like, the computer being constructed one piece at a time, and it's all sort of very handcrafted, like, almost Michelle Gondry-esque. It feels like a pretty good depiction of how a child's imagination works. It doesn't feel overly synthetic or cutesy. You know, all of that, I think, is really good. And even just the rendering of the, The Saints... I think of their performances, but also the way he does the halos I really like.
1: Mm-hmm. I like the halos. Yeah, the halos are fun. And yeah, and I like that they're all kind of regular. You know, like the performances are natural. All of that's
0: really, really good. But so yeah, basically like 10 minutes into this movie, a, a bag of money bunks him on the head while he's playing in a cardboard box by the side of train tracks. And it, it, it is the central conflict for the rest of the movie. Now, what do you do with the money? He believes it is from God. His brother thinks they should invest in real estate. (laughs) And all these sort of characters that pop up, like the Mormons, he's starting to test to figure out who is worthy of getting this money. It's this odd little boy going around with, like, money tucked in his pants.
1: Very gentle pay-it-forward kind of thing, right? Like, without any of the preachiness where the kid's just like, do you deserve money? Yeah. Are you in trouble? Uh, there's the the person selling the big issue, which was a uh, which I don't know if it still exists. It was like a magazine that um, homeless people could sell, uh, like to make money. That was like it was like this sort of very '90s British thing. Oh, does that existed in New York in the exist. early 2000s too. Yeah. Big news. Yes, I think it, was it was called Street called. News. Yeah. Street, Street news, news in New York. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, there's that moment with that person. You know, like there's there's that kind of like. Uh, sweet kid thing like where when you're with a kid say and you see maybe a homeless person you're like let's keep moving like you know like the sure. kids the one with the correct questions of like what's wrong can we help like mm-hmm. right. why How is that person help? not sleeping right. in a house like yeah right and the grown-ups are like uh don't worry about it uh that's not our problem we're gonna keep it moving now you know like that weird uh, dichotomy
0: yeah yeah there's even just like him going up to people and asking, are you poor?
1: <laughs> Which obviously
0: bites him in the ass when we meet the poor man. With the, the right. <laughs> but it's so funny because he's like, he's not doing a moral test on these people. He's not making them run through some gauntlet of questions no. to judge whether they're worthy <laughs> of it. And his mind is right. just like, do they need the money or not?
1: Yeah, it's just a reality. Right.
2: Yep.
0: Right. Anyone who has, does not have the money they want.
1: And obviously, they're not rich by any means. They live in this, you know, sort of modest circumstance. Like, But that's, you know, now that he has this bag of money, that's beyond him, obviously. That's why, yeah, yeah the older brother is like, you don't understand, buddy. You know, we got to develop this. We could here. put this to good use. <laughs> like, yeah. right, right.
0: We got to think towards the future. Well, that's the other thing is that, you know, early on uh, when he's talking to these saints, he asks them about his mother. He wants to believe that his mother has achieved sainthood in the afterlife that she's still there that she's been recognized so for this kid it's like he's he's playing the long game you know he Mm -hmm. like for him it's a simple calculation of like you got to give this mind to people in need because i need to be doing the saintly thing these are my heroes i want to be amongst them i want to be amongst my
1: mother i just want to point out griff this is interesting this is from boyle one about the the talking bin they went mm-hmm. to Disneyland Paris. He took his kids there, and they had a talking garbage can. Correct. Uh, and he was delighted by it. Uh, there was a guy in the distance who talks through a hidden microphone, Griff. Is this a thing?
0: Yep. I, I don't know if it okay. exists in any of the parks anymore, uh, but Matt, Matt Gorley, past and future guest, uh-huh. friend of the show, I believe was at one point the talking garbage can in Anaheim. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, so that's hilarious. Uh, the Halos Griff, uh, were done by a little CGI house called Clear that doesn't exist anymore, but Danny says he likes that they have a delay on them when they move. Uh, he he said they were initially done without a delay and they looked really bad, but once the delay was built in, that was, um, that was what made them work. And the other thing about the stop motion, uh, you know, the, the boy's new house, the thing you mentioned, as you guys already sort of pinpointed, biggest inspiration, Tim Burton. Like, yeah. that's, he was like, I wanted to go for, like, a Tim Burton thing. Even the um, score yeah. for this movie a lot of times
0: starts to feel scissor handsy. There are themes in it.
1: Yeah, especially at the beginning.
2: That's what really clued me into it more than anything. I mean, yes, the stop motion and CGs, but the score, John Murphy, is that the guy? It It just seems like he was deliberately trying to draw on that.
0: Well, and it was just like such a specific uh, uh, tone that Burton was able to create at this point or before this point, his like kind of miracle run in the 80s and 90s, where like that's a guy who could quickly table set a world where you would accept anything happening, even though it wasn't a musical. And right. it's like Boyle is trying to keep one foot of this movie clearly grounded reality, but it's also trying to give himself that latitude, I think, to some degree.
1: And it's interesting, like, the you know, uh, he's using Anthony Dodd Mantle again, a cinematographer who he he just worked with on 28 Days Later, but they're not shooting on digital. They're shooting on film because at that point he was like, you just couldn't get colors like this on digital and he wanted the movie to really pop with color. It's a pretty lush movie.
2: Yeah. That's how Manchester looks. That's yes. how
1: Manchester looks, right, David? Colors are just brighter. Though. I mean, I think what... You joke, but I do think he kind of was like, this is often seen as a deadly and boring Mm -hmm. kind of a place, especially the suburbs uh, of any English sort of town like that. And he wanted it to feel like delight. He wanted it to feel like what a kid would think a place like that is. I agree. The town is called Widness, which is sort of basically in between Liverpool and Manchester. Liverpool and Manchester are sort of like uh, next to each other. Um, and, and, you know, say a Ken Loach movie, Griff or whatever, would probably mm-hmm. paint this as kind of a bleak industrial landscape. And yeah. he was like, I don't want to do that. I love the, uh, cop. The cop is great. This movie is very anti-cop in, yeah. in, in a delightful little way. Like that kind of classic British thing of like, oh, they're no use.
2: is The the kettle's on, right? He's just like, where? Yeah. Give me something. Give me something for being here.
3: He welcomes everyone. He walks everyone to the neighborhood and he's like, you will probably more than likely be burgled. So here's my card when you have to eventually, you know, put in an insurance claim. But I'm not going
1: to help. We're not going to get anything out of it. Yeah.
0: And and when their home is actually invaded, he like makes the joke of like, you know, you can file a claim and, you know, try to get your money back. But that probably won't happen until next Christmas. And I'm like, dude, don't fucking kick this guy while he's down.
1: (laughs) He really sucks. He's uh, yeah. It's yeah he just, does. there's a a healthy disrespect for that kind of authority. Like at no point in this movie is anyone really like, like you see, you know, like like you're saying, Ben, like you know, well, that's the government's money. You know, like no one's actually. There's no moral concern over you know taking this bag of money. There's more of a practical concern. Uh,
0: David, I don't know if you uh,
1: skipped over this or if this is even in
0: the uh dossier, or it's coming up later, but that um, uh, Cottrell Boyce says that his like starting inspiration for this movie was reading an interview with Martin Scorsese, where Scorsese talked about as a child, the way he thought of the
1: saints. Uh, yes, he, there's a book called um, The Six O'Clock Saints uh, by Joan Wyndham, uh, which Scorsese had cited as a reference, as an influence in an interview with Roger Ebert. Uh, and basically, you know, thinking of them as these, like, insane, gory, erotic, you know, uh, kind of mad people was an early influence on the script.
0: Yes. It's cool. And this kid who's, like, collecting, like, views saints like they're baseball players or whatever, you know, wants to, like, carry them around in his pocket.
1: Yeah. Yeah, He's there's that cute scene where he's in the classroom and, like... The teacher's like, so who inspires you? And every kid is just naming a Manchester United player. Yeah, uh, and then he's like, oh, well, Saints inspire me. Like, there's this one, you know, Saint Catherine. She got executed on a wheel. Like, and the teacher has to immediately be like, all right, all right, all right, all right. You know, like, you know, it's like all of those stories are horrible. Like, there's no saint story that doesn't involve like death or war, right? Like, or sick people or whatever. You know, like, kind of yeah.
0: wild that they're like uh, taught to children.
3: Hmm. Well. I think the patron saint of TV is kind of cool. Who's the patron saint of TV? She's the one that smokes a big ass bone
1: in the beginning of the movie. That's oh, right. yeah, right. right the right. first saint one. Claire, that's right. Yeah, she yeah. is cool. She seems hip. It would be funny if like she came back today. She's from like the 12th century. She's like, mm-hmm. so how do people remember me? And people are like, oh, eh, you're patron saint of television. And she's like, what? <laughs> and they're like, oh, let oh, me cool, show what's you. on? Like, let me turn it on. <laughs> like, you're going to love it. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Do you know why she's the patron saint of television? God, Catholicism is Absolutely so no idea. Why? Uh, pope Pius XII, uh one of the weirder popes of the 20th, 20th century, uh, designated her Weird the patron pope. saint. Weird pope. That's a good idea. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's the next HBO show. <laughs> Weird pope. He called her the patron saint of television in 1958 on the basis of when she was too ill to attend mass. She had reportedly been able to hear and see television on the wall of her room what what is that like that that's insane that doesn't make any sense she was it's the 12th century like she didn't have TV. whatever does she um, call it anyways. tv how did they know it'd be funny if she did she, she was yeah. like i had like cbs fox was kind of fuzzy yeah. she couldn't know? make it to service she zoomed in okay <laughs> yeah that's what you do uh, so yeah. What else do we want to say about the plot of Millions before I we we discuss the release of it? Because I feel like we've been all over the place. On so it. Yeah.
0: the the um what's her name Daisy uh Daisy a, Daisy Donovan comes in as a woman who's a representative for I guess it's not supposed to be UNICEF but maybe a UNICEF style charity, right? Sure. And time to this whole E Day thing, the conversion that's supposed to happen. She's trying to get basically the idea of the kids to donate pocket change, whatever leftover money they're not going to convert at the bank to African villages to feed them, to uh, give them clean water machines. Uh, And they have this uh, truck, a talking uh, trash bin played by Matt Gorley, who uh, our main kid's just entranced by, but also sees that she's the one working it. I think that's kind of a cute moment where he Mm -hmm. notices her with the remote control and she kind of gives him the look that we're both in on this. Don't ruin the magic for anyone else. But then he puts a, a fat wad inside this garbage can. He's got like a broccoli wad of cash that he uh, puts in there. They call his dad broccoli in. Broccoli wad. Yeah, it it functions as a meet-cute between Nesbitt yes. and Donovan, which I think their uh, scenes together are really sweet. Um, yeah. But it also gets her involved in this sort of her voice in his ear additionally i do like that once she's aware of the money she's not the one who is virtuous about it she's not saying like well like i told you in school you need to donate all of this money to charity she's like i would like to go on a vacation
2: yeah i i appreciate that too at the same time there was another part of me watching it that was like he the father is so i understand that he's so irate and upset in this moment that he might not be thinking clearly, but he's just met this woman who he also knows what she does for a living or how they all met, and he has to assume she's a fairly virtuous woman. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he doesn't hesitate to just show this side of him and be like, "No, I'm entitled to all this. We're taking the money." He he, you know, when you are starting to date someone, you're putting on the best version of yourself, and he doesn't he he doesn't seem to mind at all that she might actually judge him. I actually do think that's maybe a A problem with the screenplay a little bit that doesn't allow those people to be more real characters, that he doesn't seem to hesitate for a second and that she doesn't seem to hesitate for a second. They don't have a conversation about it at all.
0: No, I'm a little surprised that they let her in on it and she buys into it so quickly with no hesitation. I kind of I would accept her also Ben Ben shaking his head. I accept that she also gets to the point of, look, there are things I could use that money for. It's it's the speed yep. at which they, like, mm-hmm. lay everything out for her. And she's like, well, obviously what we should do. But I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this movie's about a, a group of Ben's surrounded by one twerpy kid.
3: I'm pointing at the screen at that point in the movie. I'm like, finally, someone's talking some sense.
1: <laughs> I do think you're right, Adam. Like, there's... The characters... The, the adult characters have that kind of one foot in fantasy or, like, kid vision, mm-hmm. you know, like... Uh, which is fine for the tone of the movie. They're, they're the, the kids, are the protagonists, so the adults only have to make so much sense. But the movie might be even sweeter with like 10 more minutes for Nesbitt mm-hmm. and Donovan to really mm-hmm. like fall in love or whatever. You know, like uh, for it to be maybe even more of a three-hander. Whereas Nesbitt yeah. is very in and out in the early chunk of the film, uh, yeah. which is fine. Like, it's fine. I get it. I like that
3: the kids lying keeps getting them, like, like gets a second date, you know, because they're hiding the money in the bag that's their props for the play, and that sort of sets up a second date. Like, I I don't know. I I think that's really fun, especially because the older brother is trying to prevent it from happening.
0: David, that thing you said about Boyle talking about uh, having to figure out how to direct kids for the first time— that the right. scene of the school play with the director feels very telling in that context right where the guy is trying to change the innate energy of this kid rather than just accepting like this is what's this is what this
1: kid's this like this is the thing mm. he does yeah right you're not yeah. going to you're not going to turn that around yeah can we go for annoyed tired <laughs> that stuff's all very cute uh there's the whole sequence where we sort of see what happened with the money this kind of like fast cut robbery action sort of fantasy sequence, uh, which is very Danny Boyle and very enjoyable, uh, with the football match and all that. And, you know, um, yeah.
0: And I, I think I read somewhere that Danny Boyle pulled the kind of nature of the heist from something in his life, that it was sort of an urban legend in his town growing up. Let me see if I can find this Um, I think, but I think the specifics of the heist and how it plays out were something he added to the script.
1: Uh, that's, Makes sense. uh there is there is sort of a childish story aspect of the way it's related. It's like it's Arsenal versus Newcastle, and then this happened, and then you know, like you know, like it does feel like something a kid would make up in a way. But it's devastating for Damien, for the main kid, to learn that the money is stolen. Right? Like that is actually like tough for him. He he wanted it to be from God.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's maybe my favorite line in the movie where he says, "It isn't the money's fault; it was stolen." <laughs>
1: Very, very kid-like to empathize <laughs> yes. with something uh, inanimate. Yes.
0: But everyone's saying, like, this is bad money. And he's like, it can do good things. The money didn't do anything wrong. Well, he's a good boy. He's a good little boy, despite what yeah. Ben says.
3: Yeah. What about the interstitials? What is what is going on with this old man and this woman dressed up like Santa's helper? What, what is going on? He's like the... The British Bixby Snyder saying, I'll convert that for a dollar
1: <laughs> <laughs> essentially. So that's Leslie Phillips, who is like, uh, he's in a lot of carry on movies. You know, the carry on movies, uh, mm-hmm. Griffin. Oh, yes, uh, the, the carry on movie, the carry on films are a, uh, for people who don't know, there's dozens of them, these British comedies from the 50s and 60s, which it's always like you know, a woman's top falls off and then a guy goes like, Oh no, oh, I say, you know, and all that, uh, his famous catchphrase is ding dong. I believe Leslie <laughs> Phillips. Uh, he is better known these days probably as the voice of the sorting hat in um, Oh sure, Harry Potter. Um, but I think the idea is that's like the fake advertising campaign that britain would roll out for the euro they would get some old beloved comedy guy and because it's leslie phillips they're putting him with a buxom lady because that's what he was famous for and he's going like oh the euro it's going to be fun and sexy for britain to use the euro now uh it's it's just like a it's just a weird little joke i think about how britain would deal with the euro i like it i think it's a good campaign Yeah. Um yeah, he died Leslie Phillips by the way, died last year at the age of 98. This movie is almost 20 years old, but Leslie Phillips kept on going uh for another almost 20 years. Pretty cool. Wow. Um what else guys? There's the big Christmas shopping spree after the robbery, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think if we're forgetting anything else major uh before the finale. So you really hate the finale, Adam. When does yeah, it, When do you turn on this movie? Let's let's dig into it. Yeah, I turn on the
2: movie pretty much right after the play. I like the scene going to the old house, and yeah, he thinks the the bad guy is there, and it's really Dad. But once they once they start uh, rounding up the, they find the house has been burgled. They then decide to go to the banks. I'm sort of out on, again, I didn't really buy the dynamic and the motivation of all the characters there at that point because of the, the way she reacts or doesn't react and just is in on it. Even he, the Damien, goes from, you can't do it, Dad, you can't do it, Dad, to then all of a sudden he's making up the wee stories at the, at the bank to hurry things along and helping her out, which I can understand but also feel like, wow, he kind of he goes along with the plan a little It is a good than, racket. You have to give him yeah, credit. I, I, I have to. We is a, yeah, I is know. a pretty it, it, it solid works. racket, but it almost yeah. seems like he's, you know, he's so into being genuine and honest. And here he is embracing it for something that he's not fundamentally into. Now, maybe the point is, is that he knows he has to get the money because the bad guy is expecting the money. So whatever he has to do to get it, whether he wants to do it or not, he'll he'll do it. But where it just falls apart. And this is you guys can tell me if I'm I'm just not, I'm not giving Danny Boyle the latitude, to use your word earlier, Griffin, that he's mm-hmm. looking for or that he needs here. If I'm, if I'm being too literal, I'm, I'm too caught up on the, the narrative and the structure of it. But that moment where the doorbell rings and there's a line of people outside in the middle of the night around Christmas, I know it was set up earlier in the movie, right? He's sending those checks away in the the envelopes. And one of the saints says, don't check those boxes. They'll hound you forever. That's the only setup for that. But the idea that in the middle of the night, those people would show up and it, it, it just so throws things off completely. And then and the idea that Damien, if he was envisioning that or that's part of the fantasy, then I would get it. But it's not it's not Damien's. Point of view. It's, it's really happening. Those people are really on his street. His dad has to talk to right. them. And I, I find that sort of, I guess, a little too contrived.
1: And it, and it sort of it exists to push him out of the house to That's get it. him to the train tracks. Right. right. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, so I don't buy that. And then I have to say, I, I do like the moment with the mother, not deliberately, obviously, but it reminded me actually of the end of Field of Dreams a little bit. Mm. You know how that whole movie is about his relationship with the dad, and if you build it, he will come, but we think he's talking about Joe Jackson, and everything's been resolved in the movie, Mm -hmm. but then all of a sudden, right after everything's been resolved, the dad just shows up and reminds you that, oh, actually, this is about,
1: it's about father and son. Right, I mean, in Field of Dreams, to me, it's just like a hammer blow that turns me into a puddle of mush. Exactly, exactly. People make fun of that moment, but I love it so much.
2: Thank you, David. Thank you. You're in a safe space. Me too. And here, it's kind of like that, where all of a sudden, oh, this really is all the stuff we're talking about. The saints, you name it, right? What he's going through, it really is just all about the loss of his mother and looking for her and trying to connect with her and have some some closure. There, So the fact that we get that, that reminder, I felt great about that. And so then to tack on to that, the imaginative, let's take a rocket ship to Africa and we're going to play in the water. That that's what really bugged me a lot back in 2005. I, 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 give it a little bit more leeway this time, just because I feel like I was more in tune to the fantastic or the fantasy nature of this film. but. There's something that still sits really badly with me about that. I would have never used a term in uh, 2005 like, you know, white savior. Mm -hmm. But, and it's not that because they're not the ones responsible. I don't think we're supposed to believe that they're the ones responsible for bringing the water. But they show up and they get to frolic around in it. There's something that just feels a little exploitative and a little too... Sweet, as if all of a sudden Boyle has taken you through all this, and then he's going to want to really make you believe that he wants to change the world that danny Boyle wants wants you to feel like we're going to all work together to make the world a better place it it felt it felt inauthentic to me
0: so two prong thing for me. One, I think this is. A, a, a weirdly difficult movie to resolve. I agree with you yes. that I don't really like the way it wraps anything up, but I also have no idea in my mind how you do it better because it just starts to stack so many things up on the
1: plate. Yeah. I don't know what. I mean, obviously, the resolution should be him talking to his mother. Like, he, we mm-hmm. all, I think, agree on that. Like, that feels. So and the natural. brother,
2: the brother moment, too. The brother seeing the mom, too, that's closure after they've had their split. Right. And they've been on opposite sides of this. So the fact that now they're coming together as a family, as brothers, is important, too, with the mom.
0: I guess that's the problem. The movie knows how to resolve itself emotionally, Mm -hmm. and it executes that well. It does not how to resolve its plot. Right. It's totally stuck on how to resolve its plot, which has gotten kind of out of hand.
1: And it's like, we need to just get him to the train tracks wanting to get right. rid of the money. And it does feel like a sort of absurd contrivance that these people show up on Christmas. No one, you know, would do that. Well, and, but, uh, and
0: you're not even mentioning the additional contrivances, which is they all show up on Christmas after he's left his home to go to the other home, but they come back, they see the people there. He thinks it's the, the, the poor man, quote unquote, right? right. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to answer the doorbell. It's the line around the block. The cops show up to see what the disturbance is. That gives him the distraction to be able to leave and go to the train tracks, but it also means that when the poor man is now sneaking in through, yes. the cops are already there right. because they're investigating what's going on here because they're suspicious of Nesbitt. So it gets him caught perfectly without ever putting the kid in any immediate danger at this final right. like denouement. But then also things like, why are they like uh, uh, papering their walls with the Bills? perfectly for anyone to walk in and see Mm -hmm. and then what does the cop
1: end up making of all of this these all feel like danny boyle ideas where he's like wouldn't it be brilliant if that happened like if and it's like yeah that's fun you know and the same thing with the the dream sequence in africa at the end of the movie that feels like with it oh wouldn't that be lovely you know you sort of like see him imagining how the money would be used and and that's, uh, it's fine. I don't dislike it as much as you, Adam. But like, I do feel like it's kind of just the movies in search of like a triumphant tag. It doesn't need, and it feels a little kind of like mm-hmm. basic or head patty or whatever. Absolutely. You know, like a well, little, it, it goes where,
2: back you know. to the logic part we were saying in the musical. I can almost go with all those people showing up. I can hear the song in my head. It's almost a Jesus Christ superstar moment where we're hearing all the different people in unison. They're, they're explaining what their cause is and what their need is. And it's, it's this rousing musical moment, but as it plays out in this film where no matter how fantastical the movie is, this is being played mostly straight and it's setting up all those things. David, you said that it has to, it, Wow! Does it not work? Wow! Does it yeah, not work and, for me? And
0: especially when you're cross cutting it with the conversation with the mother, which is explicitly magical but feels emotionally honest right. and realistic.
1: Deeply, mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes.
0: Right versus this other stuff that is presented as reality and feels incredibly over the top. The the other thing that I think is interesting. Uh, so I was watching uh, a trance. Uh, We've recorded that episode already. But there's a special feature on The Trance, like Blu-ray, iTunes extras, that is Danny Boyle doing an overview of his entire career. And he's sort of just like doing speed round on all of his movies. And he talks a lot about how with Slumdog, he was basically trying to correct the sins of his past because he has been living... I think still to this day with an extreme amount of guilt over the damage that filming the beach caused to that location that they caused actual physical sort of damage, having to like redress this kind of perfect, idyllic, you know, untouched piece of nature for their own filming. But it also turned it into a tourist attraction. The government has had a really hard time controlling it it was closed down for a long time it's more the lingering damage that they're
1: right yeah 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 the the ongoing yeah
0: right he's like the, for a movie that most people don't even remember that movie has like irrevocably fucked up that island and it still lingers like you know almost 25 years later and he talked a lot about when he did slum dog and he was like i'm going to make a movie i'm going to go into india i'm going to film in the actual slums i'm going to film with actual children we cannot be invading this space you know, on the beach, I was trying to make a movie about colonialism and we ended up doing the exact thing we were trying to make a movie against. And now I try to really think about not just the movies themselves and the message, but the way in which I'm making them functioning in a moral way that I'm like sort of walking the, you know, the walk. Uh, And a thing I read that was very interesting is that uh, Danny Boyle uh, made a sort of plea to the cast and crew of this movie that there would not be cast and crew rap gifts, that they would not spend the money to make a bunch of cheap t-shirts with millions 2004 on them to everyone to take home and probably never wear, that they allocated the money that would have been for that to donate to a village in Africa to create one of these clean water machines. And it feels like he was so caught up in that concept that he also decided to make it the end of the movie. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right, right. There's Yeah, well, that's funny. I mean, I could see that. it just this movie marks a shift for him thematically right beyond just like making a movie for kids there's just like i mean sunshine is sort of even sunshine has an optimistic tinge to it at the end and then slum dog and 127 hours yeah you know oh, especially the end i think it's
0: one of the things people don't but yes he this is when he starts wearing his heart on his sleeve and it starts to turn
1: certain people off right um but it does seem to be a huge part of him and yeah maybe you're right maybe he does kind of have the burnout of like i have to stop being this kind of like you know sexy play fast hard and loose kind of you know young filmmaker and i should be more conscientious or whatever and that's forming the ending i don't care i just don't really care i care about him talking to his mom i think that stuff Mm -hmm. is fine uh i think it's good you know i think it's well done it's sweet um and it totally carries off the movie for me. But, yeah, the rest of the stuff I could take or leave.
0: Yeah, and just having
1: every one of them reveal that they secretly kept some
0: of the money so that it's a little have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. yeah, and, and then yeah. and then he doubles down and again being like, we all did the thing that we wanted. We got our vacation. We bought the PlayStation 3, this and that. But then also we did the charitable thing. Like, it just feels like he is, like, two or three times in a row trying to land on both sides in this ending. Um, yeah. but it, it is Whatever. like, I, I do like this movie, I, you know, I, the, the ending falls apart for me, but it doesn't totally sour me on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, I do just, I, I don't know. I, I like the, the swing of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too.
0: You know, for, for these two guys to do something so outside of their wheelhouse that was also pretty out of vogue in general in the industry at the time. I mean, Boyle was talking about, like, you know, he pitches he wants to do a zombie movie. People can understand the idea of doing an arthouse zombie movie or an inexpensive zombie movie. And he's like, if you go to Fox Searchlight and you say we want to make a kids movie, they don't understand how you're going to compete against Pixar. Right. Like, there isn't a thought of there being different scales of family film. Mm-hmm. And so to make one that's more grounded and lower budget and all of that, it's a thing that people rarely do. You rarely see people going to Sundance with movies that are PG, you know, that independently working outside of the studio system. That's what they're choosing to focus their energy on.
2: Right. And and I said this time around, I definitely appreciated the filmmaking a lot more. And you talked about Anthony Dodd Mantle in the cinematography here. There is some real artistry, of course. And I've been listening to your guys' series, and you've touched on this with Boyle, right? Like, he's never going to be bland. He's always going to make a choice, right? And that's why we like him, and that's why even when the films don't quite work, like this one doesn't quite for me, we still respect it, and we still want to talk about it. And there are moments like that shot when Damien, early in the film, the first night in the new house, right, leaves his bedroom, and we get Mm -hmm. the -the over-the-head shot which it didn't occur to me until thinking about it more ahead of this that it's kind of a nice heaven's eye view. Maybe the mom sort of looking down on the family, but anybody could have shot that. Oh, Damien is having trouble sleeping. Let's have a shot of him getting out of bed. Then the door opens. He, you know, long shot of him going down the hallway. Door opens on the dad. I mean, we all could script or choreograph this this moment, and the fact that he found such a graceful way to look at the entire family and move through that house is. It's really wonderful. And even, though, yeah. even when he, he opens the door, he opens the door to his brother's room, and the lighting is so precise that the, the triangle of light that comes in from the hallway points perfectly at his brother at the computer. You know, it's like yeah. that type of attention to detail that maybe you can miss the first time through, but you see it again, and it, 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 it just all feels right in that way. There's another really nice moment the first day at school when, I mean, there's a lot of great shots in this film, but there's a great shot, the first day of school, where his brother's kind of like, You're weird, stay over here, don't, don't embarrass me. And he stays there, and they just do this long pull back to show the whole expanse of the playground with Damien sitting, you know, standing there against the wall. And it, it, the separation, the juxtaposition of him motionless, alone, but against all these people having so much fun, right? It, it's just such a lovely shot that captures his, his mental state at that moment, where I think he can go a little too far, where I think we can get Danny Boyle being like, oh, I got to get out my bag of tricks here. <laughs> this isn't really adding anything, but I'm going to do something cool, is the moment where they have just come back, I think, or they're about to start looking at apartments. The brother is the looking at real estate, and so the shot starts with them walking down the sidewalk and going around a corner. And then the camera pulls back to reveal that's now a photograph of a neighborhood yes. on the glass of the business they're looking at. It's, it's a really clever shot. I've actually never seen, I'm not sure I've seen anything like it. It adds absolutely nothing. 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 It serves <laughs> but, no thematic purpose. It's ingenious.
1: But that, that but that's the that's the boil magic. It's just right. Every like you say, there's no boring shot. He can't do no. it. He won't do a boring establishing shot. No, every everything is a choice.
0: And sometimes it is a choice that somehow expresses a thing visually better than you could ever imagine. And sometimes it is just a flourish for the sake of a flourish. But
1: the other thing is when you read about how he makes his movies, especially this at this point in his career. It's small crews, so it really is, I think, him being like, come on, that'll be fun. You know, like, there is this kind of, like, everyone's in it together Mm -hmm. to do this inventive stuff. They're not like, oh, my God, Danny. Like, (laughs) that's going to take all day. Like, what are you thinking?
3: Like, did we need the video phone part of the movie? Probably not.
1: It feels like it, that just feeds into the cutting edge part of the movie. Yes. Like the sort of yeah. like, oh, it's like the near future. Like everything's changing. Like Britain's going to have the euro, all that and stuff.
3: And then he does a wipe that is like basically a screensaver. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, stylistic, I guess. Pretty. He
1: loves that new digital feel. Pretty you dated know? at thing. this point. Yeah. Well, yeah. whatever. You're dated.
3: Hey. I am. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Box you heard office me. game.
1: Well, uh, one thing, as I set up the box office game, uh, this film premiered at TIFF in 2004, and mm-hmm. Danny Boyle, I think, in my opinion, kind of wisely, was like, so is this going to be a Christmas release? And Pathé decided to kick it to March, and they probably should have released it at Christmas because it wasn't yeah. a success anyway. Like, it made 6 million US and about 11 worldwide. Like, I think it did okay on home video, but, like, he, the Boyle's quote is... Uh, there was a lack of confidence about our ability to compete with the big three American movies released at Christmas. I remember thinking they'd be awful, and they were. I actually, want to look up America at Christmas? Do you know? Do you remember yeah. what the Christmas movies I'm were that look year it up.
0: for two thousand three? Or 2004. Four, yeah. uh, So I guess it's like the Polar Express year, but obviously that had been Polar Express, Elf, Incredibles. I'm like, what comes out on Christmas Day, 2004?
1: It's like Meet the Fockers and Lemony Snicket. Okay. And, you know, I guess that's sort of, you know, Spanglish. It isn't the best weekend. I I can see what he's saying. National Treasure, though that's good. Hey, oh, no, but hey. that's been yeah. out for oh. since Thanksgiving, yeah. right? I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, Fa- the Christmas Phantom Day of the Opera. releases, right? Fat Albert. Yeah, yeah. It is a bad crop. Yeah.
0: yeah, those were the three. It was Fokker's Phantom of the Opera, and Fat Albert were the three that came Ooh. out on Christmas, basically.
1: Well, nonetheless, this was more of an Easter release, and so let's uh-huh. do the March eleventh, two thousand five, box office Griffin. This film okay. is opening in limited release on five screens for seventy thousand dollars. But number one is an animated mm-hmm. film for children. In two thousand five, was it Meet the
0: Robinsons?
1: No, it is not a Disney film. It is from it is not a... Fox. It's a Fox movie. Is it yes. Ice Age Two? No, no, no. It's robots. It's robots. It's robots. It's robots. It's robots. It's robots. Which I've never seen robots have you seen robots it's it's william uh,
0: joyce so the whole like the design of that movie is incredible and i remember uh-huh. the script being incomprehensible despite being written by david Lindsay a
1: uh that is who it was written by you were correct along yeah. with uh lowell gans and babaloo mandel that the you know the Odd icons right. yes. but like a movie
0: with like a great the art of robots book probably it works sure. on that level. Have you ever seen that movie, Adam? Have you have you had to? You have not had to go through robots with any of
2: the children. No, we have not seen it, and obviously, we chose to talk about Millions that week instead of yeah, <laughs> talking about robots. Yeah, right?
1: Yeah, you did not talk about robots. No, nope. uh, just feels like a movie lost a time. Like could be on Disney Plus. Isn't? Isn't? Like like no one wants to think about. Millions it.
0: is on Disney Plus. Disney
1: has sure claimed is. Millions
0: as one of their own. Robots, absolutely not.
1: Um, so number two is a family film, Griff, that was number one the week before, and it stars one of your favorites. Uh,
0: it stars one of my favorites. Is it a Steve Martin film? No,
1: it, he, this this guy doesn't do a family film, usually.
0: Nope. I know what it is. It is arguably my least favorite film of his. It is
1: The Pacifier. It's The Pacifier. Vin Diesel's The Pacifier. Uh, with Vin Diesel and Lauren Graham. He's uh, an FBI, no, Navy SEAL, who has to He's be a babysitter. Yeah, there's a duck in it. Okay. I've never seen it. It was an unambiguous hit. That was is the thing people huge, forget. Huge, huge hit. It was kind of the moment of like, okay, Vin Diesel must be for real. He's, you know, getting that over the line, you know. Well, was, and then, was,
0: and yeah. then The Rock follows his lead and does like Tooth Fairy in the game plan. He does his run of doing The Family, Now I'm with a bunch of little kids movies. The pacifier bigger than any of The Rock's attempts to do that. The pacifier was mm. wildly successful.
1: It is uh, not a good movie. Speaking of The Rock, uh, number three, uh, Adam already invoked it. It was the movie he talked about on the prior episode of his podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a, a crime comedy ensemble picture. Yes, be cool, uh, and a sequel. It is be cool. Uh, F. Gary Gray's "Be Cool," which I remember being god awful. It is god awful, and it's The Rock is in that, right? Because The Rock is he sure is. Incredibly He's good one of the in more that. interesting parts of it. Yeah, that yeah,
2: was the right. last time maybe The Rock was ever
0: interesting on screen. In fact, I think it's that and "Pain and Gain." Although I know "Pain and Gain" is also yeah, a very contentious oh, movie divisive. in the history of film. Spot divisive. I love that. I Josh love that. is
2: a big fan. He's also a much bigger fan of millions than I am. Damien was Damien was on his top five Danny Boyle characters. Wow. When we
0: when we have Josh on sometime in the future, we we will get a speed round on his millions of pennies. You know
2: what else he likes, guys? Sorry. He's also a big fan of A Life Less Ordinary. He's the one. Okay. Well, that's...
0: We might try him at The Hague for that.
1: You know, a lot of people like that movie, Griff. Like, our Reddit I was, was very surprised. like... Oh, what a charmer. And I was... I, I can't get there with A Life Less no, Ordinary. No, you guys were right. I hate it. You were already yeah, right either. yeah. No. Um, so number three is Be Cool Which was you know kind of a flop Made 55 mm-hmm. million uh, Number four is I saw this film in theaters It is an action picture starring An action star uh, hmm. It's very basic film I remember that the opening credits Were the best Bruce thing Willis about and it. A Hostage. That's correct uh, I saw it in theaters just don't remember anything else About it Kevin Pollack might be the Bad guy I thought Ben Foster was the bad guy. Oh, yeah, that's right. Ben Foster's the bad guy. Kevin Pollack might be the good guy, in the, but then maybe turns out to be bad. Yeah. You know, one of those uh, classic, like, he's your friend, and then he's like, hey, well, I'm sorry, they they offered <laughs> me a lot of money. I'm Kevin Pollack. I have a it's flat just, cap It's just on, business. You know? It's business. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just business, but I know we're friends. I, yeah, no, I went to your daughter's wedding. I understand, <laughs> but,
0: you know... Ben Foster, like deep into his run of reading a script and going, My take on this character is shaving my head and acting like I'm on crystal math. <laughs> he did that about ten times.
1: I feel oh, like in interesting. Interesting like that. choice for you, Ben. Okay, yeah. very good. I don't Poor know. I'm ben.
0: seeing this sort of explosive uh no, it, it, like you just you describing that as generic as your description sounded. It, I felt like there was only one movie it could be because this was that era where even though Bruce Willis movies weren't as big as they were, they obviously were more legitimate than like the sad
1: sort of run. Into yeah, they would get diminished big, wide release. Right. Uh, you know, this movie opened to 10 million dollars and made 35. It did not do. I well. just
0: remember that one coming out and going like.
1: Why did he sign on to this? The pitch was,
0: "What if there was a hostage?" Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> there's like no hook hostage?
1: here. Yeah, it's not really a hook. Uh, I don't know, and and the director is not like a well known director, so yeah, I don't know. Number five, Griffin is a big hit of the early, uh, winter, uh, spring, whatever. You know, okay. it's been out okay. for a month plus. Uh, it's a romantic comedy.
0: Romantic comedy a in
1: 2005 star. One huge star One huge star This star is This movie oh. oh I'm sorry, you're talking about
0: Less a movie and more a movement You're talking oh, no. about The one name that is The cure for the common man
1: Sure, yes He was the cure for the common man And his name was It's Hitch, Hitch. Uh, and he would tell you things like, don't offer to buy your girlfriend a diet soda, you buffoon. That'll be $10,000, yeah. please. Yes. Or whatever, whatever it is he Ex- does. Look, expensive, but he's worth it, the results.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talk about Pacifier being one of those moments where people threw up their hands. I mean, the moment pretty much ends right after Pacifier. But, oh, like, if Vin could make this a hit, then I guess this guy is more powerful than we thought. Right. Hitch becoming that level of blockbuster was truly the moment where I think everyone went, I guess will smith literally in anything in any genre at any time
1: of year works um i have long contended that film is now uh there's just a lot of fake nostalgia for that movie it's not a very good movie Mm. but uh some people stick up for hitch including maybe one griffin newman
0: is it a better let's put it this way would Hitch have aged better as a best picture winner than Crash? This is the question I throw
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> you're yes. saying it doesn't Un- age Unambiguously. But yes.
0: Unambiguously.
1: Yes. I mean, obviously you're putting it up against, I mean, Crash is the biggest fall guy possible, but yes. Of course. Yes. Yes.
0: If Hitch won Best Picture, it would not be like one of but the wait, most wait embarrassing
1: best picture winners. If Hitch had beaten Brokeback Mountain to Best Picture. <laughs> okay. Dare you're right, Griff. People would be angry. <laughs> like, I do think people might hold a grudge against it. Remember when they gave it to Hitch? <laughs> yeah, they would that, you know. Imagine Jack Nicholson going, Hitch? <laughs> like, that was it. Andy Tennant yeah. won best director for Hitch? Good boy. Uh, some other films in the top ten that week: Million Dollar Baby, uh, which is okay. on its post Best Picture win run to a hundred million dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. Diary of a Mad Black Woman, which had come out three weeks earlier and shocked everyone, and you know yeah. begins the the Pirate first Empire movie. Uh, yeah. Empire, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wildly underrated Constantine that is isn't getting a sequel. Like it's they're like now tripling
0: down on like we swear to God we're doing it.
1: Yeah, right. Man of the House. Uh, the Tommy Lee Jones Christina Milian two hander. Uh well, I don't know why those guys haven't worked together again. Okay,
0: Adam, you texted me about this recently. Uh huh. Oh, about Man of the House. Was there a misunderstanding? Because you were you were getting mad at me for defending Man of the House, the Chevy Chase Jonathan Taylor
2: com right t-
0: uh, Jonathan Taylor right. Thomas comedy. Were you confusing it with this, or do you hate that movie as much as this one?
2: I've actually never seen. Either. I was more just aghast at your ability to pull these titles and to okay. yeah, and, I mean, and, it's and to sometimes say positive things about these movies that I've always assumed were just awful. I have not seen this film.
0: Oh, I haven't either. Yes. Your exact text, Adam, was man of the house. Come the fuck on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't believe you pulled that. Well, got a broken brain. Apparently, Ann Archer is in this movie. I just remember that being one of those releases where it was kind of like, well, what, like, this, is, this isn't helping anybody. Tommy Lee Jones, he has no. more dignity than this. He doesn't need to be the man of the house. No,
0: also one of those movies where you're like, was this shot in 96 and it's just sat <laughs> on a... Sh-? It like didn't feel like a 2005 movie.
1: Tommy Lee Jones? Cheerleaders? Like, I'm supposed right. to be like, oh, wow, what a combination. I assume he does rock the house, though, of course, Griffin. Yes. Um, well, that's why they called it that, yeah. Right. Uh, number 10 at the box office is Cursed, the uh, West Craven, the much-delayed oh, yeah. West yeah. Craven werewolf horror comedy. Yes, yes. yes. eisenberg Greachy. Which I've never seen. I've never seen it, uh, and I was hyped for it. I remember, and then the reviews yeah. were so universally uh, despondent that I, I avoided. think
0: fairly disowned because it was also Kevin Williamson yeah. and Craven working together.
1: It was. For the there first was excitement time. about yeah. it, but, right? But everyone yeah. swore off of it. Um, but there's anyway. a, there's
0: apparently a still a an outcry to release the Craven cut. Hashtag. Why
1: not. Yeah, do it. What do I care? Yeah, release the Craven cut. We'll do Craven, Craven one day. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Um, the film got good reviews. It yeah. and it, I do think it's not it's not a cult classic by any means, but it's sort of like a well liked family, you know, rental like that. Maybe got to that status, but it is just a funny little oddity in between these two hyper-dark sci-fi films that he made.
0: Especially, you're scrolling across Disney+, where so much of what's on there next to millions is either so humongous and bombastic right. and, like, overexposed, or, like, weird, non-existent, live-action Disney curios, like Man of the House, that no one but me find any nostalgia for. Like, this is sort of an odd outlier. And it is, like, it is a it is a charming movie for its faults agree millions we did it we talked about it we did it we talked about millions adam uh thank you so much thank you uh such a pleasure uh people who should listen to film spotting who don't already it's 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 uh it's a real comfort food podcast for me i i find you guys very relaxing Mm. and i hope that doesn't sound backhanded in any way but it was a thing I found so funny uh, listening to the second episode for the first time mm-hmm. is on on that at the beginning of the cinecast, you maybe talk even faster than I do. And I think of you now as someone who has settled so well into like such a professional broadcaster, like public radio voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have like very
2: specific rhythms that is something that has changed. That was one of the things that horrified me. Horrified me. Besides the fact that I felt like I did not give my much smarter co-host Sam any room to talk, it was exasperating. It felt like I I was talking so fast. I I, I don't know what the race was. I don't know if it was that I was trying to make the show quicker for our listeners yeah. or what. But I was just talking so fast about this movie, and I I it did make me realize how much I've I've settled into. Uh, something maybe a little bit more comfortable in terms of my pace. Yes.
0: I, I highly recommend listening to current episodes of Film Spotting, and then maybe when you're done, go
2: back to episode two. <laughs> or, or not. You don't ever need it to It would be quite,
1: quite a project if someone was like, I'm listening to every damn episode. I'm it, happens. it up. I'm doing it It all. happens.
2: Yeah. It blows my mind, but some people, they hear they get into the show. I'm sure they do it with your show too, right? But they hear it, and they go back to the beginning. They go back, and they want to hear everything in order. It It's crazy.
1: They do it with our show, and I get it. And I do it with new shows that I discover. But, but you know, for 50, 18 years, or you know, it's right, just, yeah. it's just right. a lot of show. Well, so your show is, like, usually tied to new releases. So
0: it's, it's truly just, like, time traveling back to, like, what it was is. the thing? Be Cool was the talk of the town in April 2005.
2: <laughs> I know. We actually felt so bad about it. Say, I remember having a conversation at the time where it's like, what should our—now, this is Be Cool, but we were saying, what should our first episode be? And we knew that coming out in a month or two was Revenge of the Sith. Oh, yeah. And right. so I remember posing to Sam, like, should we actually wait? Should we make our first episode be at least a movie people maybe want to hear people talk about and are excited about it? And Sam was smart enough to just say, no, we should just start. You know, we, it doesn't matter. Yeah, let get just, your sea legs. Let's, yeah. let's get it go right. And so we did. And I think that it ended up being episode 14 or something like that. He was really right because if we hadn't had that leeway, it would have been a... A struggle.
0: Adam, sorry to correct you. It ended up being episode three. Episode three, Revenge of the Sith. There's no way. Was it? Apologies. No, let's make a bad Star Wars joke. Uh, I oh, also I'm sorry. Th- think... Okay,
2: thank you. I, I no, feel so bad. bad. I missed bad. the joke. It was bad. It was I was bad. thinking, it no, thinking. I remember we talked about Melinda and Melinda on week three. Well, so how dare you, hey. Griffin?
1: <laughs> She's comedy
2: and drama. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: And, 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 you know, if you had done Revenge of the Sith, if your first episode ever had been you shitting on Revenge of the Sith, I don't think Josh ever would have agreed to co-host Film Spot. I actually loved Revenge of the Sith.
2: <laughs> really? I loved it in 05.
3: Wow. I think wow.
2: I, I might've given it like five stars. So maybe I, at, at this point, well,
0: look, I, these, I should these go. Are, these are reasons to dig through the film spotting archive. There you go. Um, and I thank you so much for doing this. Thank
2: you. No, it's a, always a pleasure.
0: Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce this show. Thank you to Alex Barron, AJ McKeon for our editing, Lay Montgomery for our theme song, Joe Bowen, Pat Reynolds for our artwork, and J.J. Birch for throwing a duffel bag off of a moving train filled with notes about Danny Boyle's millions. His dossiers have gotten about as heavy as a duffel bag full of a (laughs) million (laughs) dollars.
1: Yes. We love him.
0: Yes, we do. Tune in next week for Sunshine. Yeah. Another wild swerve, one of our shared favorite movies and a movie we've been waiting to talk about since we started this show eight years ago. Legit. Legit. Uh, You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit including our Patreon, Blank check Special Features, where we do franchise commentaries and all sorts of other bonus things like the Olympic ceremony. And 28 weeks later, we'll both be happening over there. Yep. Sunshine, no guest. We're calling it right now for you dang ass no freaks. Nope. Because David and I just need to vibe out on this one.
2: I didn't realize this movie was a thing for you guys. Now oh, I'm so hu- excited.
0: Oh, huge. Humongous. Huge for me. Okay. Humongous! Like before, we even had the miniseries idea. We were like, we should just do a sun, a sunshine episode on its own. When we were just a Star Wars podcast, we were like, we should just talk about sunshine one week. Um So get ready for what will be the most important episode in the history of podcasting. It'll
3: and be twenty nine minutes long, probably or something.
0: Right? Yeah, quick twenty nine. So, no, we're as, gonna keep that one as
2: podcast should. Be.
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, and as always, if Ben had found the bag of money for millions, it would have ended with him living on an island that he
3: owns. 100%. Okay. Mm.
0: I thought you said you had your quote. I did, I'm second-guessing it, but I'm
1: going to do this. Just do it, and then if we hate it, we'll tell you. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll tell you we won't, okay. we won't spare your feelings. Ready? Re- ben? Yeah.
0: I want you to place that at the end of the episode in anticipation okay. for what I'm about to do, because I think there's going to be some f- befuddlement. Okay. I can't wait to hear you do a minion voice. No, I'm not doing that. This isn't minions. I hope you didn't wait. watch minions by accident. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that's at the end of the episode. Ready?